episode number 80. Enough with the mm-hmm. offensive and defensive linemen. Episode number 80, Hot Shot Scott. And this is going to test us because when we started way before you were around, back in the days of Jason D. Hamilton when we got good ratings and reviews. Never heard of him. Go on. Uh, we made a determination that this was not going to be about the local yokels. Okay. That we were going to make the right assessment on who we were naming these episodes, the greatest number, in this case, 80. He, is a, is, he is a yokel, by the th- way. Th- this is, this is going to really, truly back you against the wall and yep. see whether you've got the intestinal fortitude to say, hey, we've got to do what's right. Because there have been a lot of great 80s. And we'll get there in a moment. Episode 80, by the way, available on most podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify and Podcast Addict. And we want you to subscribe and rate us. We also want you to become a patron so that you can get. How did you how did you enjoy the Fisherman Jeff Aaron patron episode 79p last thursday well i said on the episode i could not have loved it anymore i mean i love both <laughs> you guys we all three worked as my first job in radio yeah was working for you and did and, you think the reminiscing Jeff. went i mean sometimes you could have a high bar you could expect that the the reunion is going to be better than it actually turns out to be you had a high <laughs> bar did it did it reach your expectations the three of us kind of just shooting the you know what talking about old times i loved it it said it, it met it for me i couldn't have loved it anymore we could have gone longer and now i kind of want to work together let's go let's go find a cockamamie radio station somewhere for the three of us oh, to why do can't we do it on mitch unfiltered from time to time yeah we should we should have him on more often he'll be all right do it I th- oh i think he's gonna want to get paid well everyone wants to get paid eventually <laughs> right it'll, it'll get weird and then everything always gets well, how weird. long do we have before it gets weird <laughs> well let's find out <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about but you're probably not a patron uh when i first started at kjr i guess it wasn't when i first started because i had brian wheeler as my partner in the middays when right. i did a year of middays in 1995 but when i went down to do mornings at kjr we started with a crew a cast of characters that was fun including you yep you were how old at the time 22 20 22 years old, and our our brethren was the fisherman Jeff Aaron. Yep. In those days, he was just Jeff Aaron, but we we nicknamed him the fisherman. And we he, don't I, get me involved in this. <laughs> <laughs> we you nicknamed uh, everybody, including him. And he was our he was our co-host from 1996 to 2007, and we did a special 79p reunion show. So great last Thursday. Yeah, where we just blew out the normal format, <laughs> and we had. The fish. I haven't visited with the fish. That was probably the first time in. I mean, we we've texted back and forth. We've emailed back and forth. We were in the same golf league for a while, but we haven't conversed like that yeah. in twenty years. Did you enjoy it though? Well, maybe not twenty years. I guess it'd be fifteen years. Did yeah, you, it was I did. Fun, right? I did. I just hope that it lived up to. I know that you were kind of. We had to do all kinds of finagling. From yeah. A, from a technological standpoint, I just hope it it lived up to the billing. I hope it did, too. I hope it did did for me. I hope it did for everybody else. So if you're not a patron, you don't get the Thursday shows. If you want to become a patron, very easy to do so. Go to MitchUnfiltered.com. For $5 a month at MitchUnfiltered.com, you can click Become a Patron, and then you'll have access to our second show each week, which is kind of a fun show. Typically, it's a full two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour, three-guest, just like these shows, just... A lot of people just didn't want one a week. They wanted two a week. So for $5 a month, you can do it. Now, this is going to be a different show because I'm not here. How do I say this? <laughs> You're not here. I'm not here. You look just like Mitch. I'm here now, but I'm not here now. Yeah. So I decided to take the family on, uh, what do they call it, midwinter break? Midwinter break, yes. Midwinter break. Which we never had, by the way. Yeah. Bull crap. We, we, 
No, I never had it. I never had it well, either. Well, there's no winter in Florida. We never had any kind of winter. We just had the winter, the main winter break. I it's bull crap that they get a midwinter break. They don't they need it. They get teacher conference oh, day. Yeah. They get all kinds of Mondays and all kinds of all kinds Early of anyway, release. Anyway, because I decided to take the family down to Florida, we recorded this a little ahead of time mm-hmm. and decided to do something a little different because we wouldn't be obviously up to square, up to speed on exactly what's happening in the world of sports. We decided, because this is number 80, and when you factor in, Hotshot, the 40 or so, maybe 45 or so patron shows, we've done in the last 16, 17 months since we started this, we've now done about 125, 130 shows, which means we have done more than 400 guests in the little lifespan of lot. Mitch Unfiltered. Because we do normally three, sometimes four shows. More, more times four shows, three to three shows. Yeah, yeah. So you do the math. We've done about 125 shows. We've done 400 guests. And what we decided to do, you, me, and Steve, Steve Dion, our executive producer, thank you, Steve, we decided to do a show, now that it's number 80 and I'm out of town, picking our favorite four. Our final four. A lot of thought in went into this. In the spirit of the NCAA tournament, our <laughs> final four. Yep. You and I and Steve were talking about who this and that yeah, one. This and one's we went good. back and forth yep. as to which of the which of the of the four hundred or so interviews we were going to pick our favorite four. Now I understand you don't have to explain to me that because it's a podcast that you can go back and find these people in their typical. But I figured this would make it easy. There's a lot of people who didn't listen and haven't heard a lot of the podcast, and I just thought. Here's a way to take our favorite four and not say, hey, go back to 42 and fast forward to an hour and 12 minutes into 42, and there's one of our guys. And then go back to 28 or 23 and fast forward to 40. Instead of making somebody do all that, why not take the four, our four favorite interviews, and put them on one show? Yep. So you can just sit down at your convenience and listen to the four. And we're going to give a little thought, a couple thoughts on them, because maybe it's been a while since we've heard it. They were moving. So let me tell you, and I know that some people are listening going, oh, I probably heard all four of them. Well, I, I apologize to you. If you're one of those people, first of all, I thank you. That means you are an amazing, an amazing listener of Mitch Unfiltered and a great supporter. But they haven't heard this because I just did that, right? That's something new. That's what I bring to the show. Ten years on Cube, I and made that thus noise. the reason we don't get rated and reviewed any longer. <laughs> the show has reached a new low. So let me tell you the four that we've picked. Now, I will say this, that... It was difficult to narrow 400 down to four, obviously. And what made it a little more difficult is that we had Tyler Holinsky's father on recently. And I think ordinarily we would have included him and his message, which I think was very important. Agree. Um, him and his family's message in this episode. But we decided we made an executive decision that because it's so recent, that was the most recent one. That's only about five or six or eight episodes ago, maybe even less. We decided to go further back. So we have excluded the, the Mark Halinsky interview for the, for, the, for the sake of this show. Yeah. Got it? Yep. And here's the four that we chose. Had you heard all these four, by the way, before, before we chose them or not? I think I was around for three of the four. So I had to go back and listen to one. Yeah. Well, I went back and I actually listened to all four. Even having done them and just not remember, I went back and listened to them all four to get prepared for episode 80. Stephen Elliott. Stephen Elliott... Was a, was a guy who came on our show to talk about his life after accidentally being the one who fired the bullet that killed Pat Tillman. Friendly fire, they call it. Friendly fire. Yeah. Everybody knows the Pat Tillman story, former NFL Cardinal, great. 
and and you know just a legendary personality who gave up his entire career to go represent his country but very few people until recently knew the Stephen Elliott story and what this man who's a local guy lives south I think in Olympia or somewhere in Olympia near Olympia what this man's life has become what this man's life has become and how difficult his the challenges were for him to accept the notion that he was likely the person who accidentally and friendly fire killed Pat Tillman Pat Tillman by the way may be the most famous soldier of all time because of it well, no, I mean, Pat Tillman was like the most famous soldier because he was in the NFL. Everyone, oh, yeah, yeah. everyone knew him, and you're Everybody the one. You're, the, you're one. the one who took him out. It's yeah. a story that's heartbreaking and triumphant all in one. And it was beautifully delivered in both a book and on our show. And I thought, let's, let's re-rack Stephen Elliott. I mean, you know how much I hate people saying you're the greatest interviewer of all time, how it just annoys me? You really do a good job with this. I have really? to, yes, I have Thank to say you. it. Thank you. I have to say it. You do yeah. a, I mean, you're very delicate when you need to be. Because it's, it's tough. It's a tough it's one. It's a very difficult story, but it's an important story to listen to. And I think you come away from the story feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good for him and kind of understanding the situation. So Stephen Elliott will be one of the four. The second one will be John Bracken. John Bracken is an old buddy of mine who on episode 23, of course, named after Michael Jordan, yes. told an unbelievable tale. This is one that you had not heard. Correct. He told an unbelievable tale of being contacted by Fred Cup by Fred Couples agent and somebody who was connected to Michael Jordan in 1996 and asked to host Michael Jordan when he was coming here for the NBA Finals in Game 3 for a couple of days of golf. Now, the word unbelievable is used way too much. All right, I'll take it back. No, no, no. It works take- here. Okay. It's, it's unbelievable, the story he tells. It's a great story. It's it's. It's a great. It's you one of the all-time it. greatest stories. If someone told you this story, you would you would have him committed. Yeah, this doesn't doesn't happen to just a regular guy. So on on episode twenty three, John Bracken, my buddy, came on and told the whole story how he was contacted out of the blue and asked to host Michael Jordan for a couple of days of golf. And if you haven't heard the story, you gotta hear it. I listened to and it. You'll back, hear it on this episode. I listened to it back with my daughter, my ten year old in the car, and she was loving it. She was loving it because she couldn't believe it because she knows about Michael George. She couldn't believe it was true. That was interview number two on this show. Okay. Interview number three of our fabulous four or our final four. Rob Sarah, 9-11 responder, New York City firefighter, brand new to the job on September the eleventh, two thousand and one. His story of running to that site, to the World Trade Center site and risking his life and what's happened to him and his peers in the years since that one of the worst days in American history is a story that I thought was very important at the time. And the more I think about it, the more I believe he needs to be included on this episode. I would agree with you. Yeah, he was he was so new to the job. He said he was pulling tags off of gear. Don't say too much. I mean, but it's just the stuff he was saying was it's the first day on the job. First day of the job. Just about out of training. Just out of training, rushing on September the 11th, 2001 to the World Trade Centers and and everything that's happened to him in the uh, what? 19 years since he's 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 interview number three and interview number four is an old golfer that I remember when he was in his prime. A guy by the name of Ken Green. 
Uh, it's not a golfing story. So for all of you going, oh, here goes Mitch. He's always putting golfing. It's not a golfing story. You're right. I mean, you're, it's a life story. That's right. A guy who's won multiple times on the PGA Tour, nearly won some majors, was on a Ryder Cup team, was one of the top American players back in the 1980s, and just... I won't say unbelievable. I'm trying to come up with a better Well, word. that's pretty close, too, though. Uh, just an incredible twists and turns, ups and downs. Yeah. You'll laugh when you listen to this guy. He will make, I, I promise you, minutes before making you cry, he will make you laugh. He is unfiltered. He is funny. He is exuberant. And yet he suffered the highs and the cruelties of life. And the highs and lows of life like no nobody's business. If you were to make up his life and pitch it to a movie studio, they would right. tell you it's too fake. Right. Nobody would believe it. You right. got you tone it down a little bit. Right. Hotshot, our special episode 80 is, of course, not possible without our partners like Zeke's Pizza, more sports pizza and craft beer at a true Northwest original. My family and I spent more evenings in 2019 at Zeke's Pizza than we ever have before. 17 great locations, Linwood to Tacoma, and straight to your door, too. Download the Zeke's Pizza app, Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Daniel's Broiler for the month of February, a bottle of Vouve Clicquot Champagne for just $40 to celebrate Daniel's 40th birthday, regularly $145 at the Leshy location only with the purchase of one entree, four terrific locations, Leshy, South Lake Union, Bellevue, and the spectacular new Daniels in the downtown Seattle Hyatt Regency world-class steakhouses. The Kirkland office at Gill Mortgage. Give Jordan Flowers' team a call, 425-250-3150, just to see if a refinance makes sense for you and your family. It takes like seven minutes on the phone, and you'll know the answer. You could be reducing your monthly payments and pulling thousands and thousands of dollars out of your loan with the Kirkland office of Gill Mortgage. An Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest with offices along the West Coast, and not only the originator of Evervestment.com, a new program that caters to those of us that don't have the wealth that many of Evergreen's clients have, but still want to grow our money. They're one of the biggest reasons why Mitch Unfiltered continues to go strong, even with this episode 80, a special best of episode, evervestment.com, E-V-E-R-V-E-S-T-M-E-N-T.com. Here we go. Episode 80, something a little different, starts now. Welcome back. We've missed your voice every day. Welcome back. There's been so much to say. No one feels our pain. They don't wear our shoes, especially when our mistakes end up on front page news. Oh, Mitch, you know we miss you. Schnoz, we know we miss you. Thank God I wasn't with you. No, I wasn't with you. I'm going to tease you a lot because Peter King took my spot. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Mitch's our guy. He's our guy. He's our guy. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Unbelievable. Yeah, there you go. Wow. There you 
Unfiltered. If you're going to include these lyrics and then guys are going to get in trouble because they're not black and they're singing the lyrics that you provided for them, then I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know what the answer is. Don't put these words in the lyrics. Why do we have to put objectionable language? I know I'm, I'm sounding like an 80-year-old guy. Get off my lawn. I get it. Unfiltered. It is unbelievable how far out these guys are routinely just taking, not late shot clock, just normal routine jump. They have, been, they have become so good from 30, 35 feet. It's like a normal shot that... To me, to have the three-point shootout in three uh, in five spots right on the line anymore doesn't make sense anymore. Move it back. Mitch is unfiltered. A special and different episode eighty. I got to say, first of all, look at you loving the whole idea of the best of. You never got to do it in sports radio. Ever. I'm not. I'm not necessarily loving the okay. idea of best of. I'm well, loving the idea love it. that right now, as people are listening to the best of, that I'm with my 86 year old mom. All right, fair enough. That's what I'm getting. Sun probably too. Unlike the rest. Well, of us hopefully here. the sun's out right now in beautiful South Florida. <laughs> but but before we get to the Fab Four, to the final four, to the best of the four mm. interviews that we've chosen for this show that we think are the most moving and important ones of the first 400 interviews that we've done on Mitch Unfiltered. Episode Dane Looker. Oh, I mean, they lock for number 80. Oh, yeah, you're not going to do better than that. Go on. Episode Kellen Winslow. Uh, he was pretty good. Junior? <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's go with Junior. No. <laughs> okay. Episode Chris Carter. Well, now the laughing can stop because he could play. He could play. Episode Steve Largent. He wasn't bad as well. Episode Jerry Rice. Yeah. I mean, it's you're putting your you're putting my back up against the wall here. I mean, it's like for number twenty three, number eighty is the same, really in the same league, right? They say Jerry Rice is the greatest forget receiver football player of all time, and this is coming from a guy who has a signed Steve Largent Wheaties box at my house still. I wasn't around when Steve La- I wasn't here when Steve Largent was starring for the Seattle Seahawks. You look at Steve I was Largent, in Florida. I know he was a great receiver. Let me let me ask it to you this way. Okay, let me ask it to you this way. I'm not good. Drop your, take yourself out of Seattle and drop yourself into Kansas City, Missouri. No, drop yourself into to, Topeka, Kansas. No football team. I have relatives there. Weird, you said that. All right, okay. let's no, no, no. Let's go to uh, where don't you have relatives? Let's go to Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> drop yourself. Re- re- no, I'm just. Kidding. Drop yourself into Omaha, Nebraska, okay. and make yourself just a just a fabulous. NFL fan, a lover of the NFL, somebody who's followed the NFL for so many years, but you've never had a favorite team. So you have no allegiance to anybody. You just love NFL football. Okay. And you're his, you're an historian. You remember the, all the players, okay? Okay, what, what year is it? Is it current? Yeah, it's current. Okay. It's current. And you're the age that you are now. Okay. And I ask you to compare. Let's take Jerry Rice out of it. Okay. Because you wouldn't even give 10 seconds worth of consideration to comparing Jerry Rice with any of these guys because Jerry Rice is the best. That's right. Okay. If I asked you to compare Steve Largent and Chris Carter and you lived in Omaha, Nebraska, how would you differentiate between those two? They're both Hall of Famers. I bet you if you looked at the statistics, they're either close or Carter's got Largent probably in career stats. How would you compare those two? I mean, you're sitting here saying, can we give it to large and over rice? Can no, we give it to large on. and over rice? Can we give it to large and over rice? Because you're sitting in Seattle. I'll ask, can you give it to large and over Chris Carter? Yes. 
When, when Steve just Largent, because Chris, just because Steve Largent decked that Broncos guy, I was there. I was there. Thank you, Grandma. Everybody was there. Mike Harden. Everybody no, says no. they were there. My Grandma, season you weren't there. Everybody says the Grandma they were that there. said I was too fat, season ticket holders in '76. Okay, that so she gave me tickets. How oh, I was there. You were there. Absolutely. Mike Harden, he got him. No, but when Steve Largent retired, if he I held called every, Peter he held every record. Yes. If Chris I could, Carter did not. Well, when Chris Carter retired, he had okay, he, he fine. Out, he outdistanced Steve. Lar- Lar- Let's look at the number. We can bring right. him back for the for the final segment. By the way, uh, Largent I'll look played, him up for the final segment. Largent played a lot of his career uh, under ground chuck. Look, I'm not a Chris Carter fan. I'm not telling you I'm a Chris Carter fan. I'm not. I'm not sucking up to Chris Carter. I'm just asking you. If I ask Peter King, only one guy can be in the Hall of Fame between Chris Carter and Steve Largent. Who would it be? Are you sure he would say Steve Largent? Yes. You're sure. Yes. He held every record when he retired, receiving. Shockingly, I don't know how. I understand that. Every record. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Sure it does. He was the best receiver in the game when he played. He was the best at his position when he played the game. But what if Chris Carter had a better career than him? After the fact. Doesn't that erase a little bit of what... I'm I'm not hating on Steve Largent. I just think... I think that you've got him loftier maybe in the annals of NFL wide receivers than maybe you should. I think the record books did that for me. I mean, he broke every record. He held them all. Receptions, yards, touchdowns, everything. He held them all. I mean, it's not my opinion. All right, I'm looking up Chris Carter's stats. Uh, You look up Chris Carter's stat for for our final segment when we have to name the show. We're going to name an episode Jerry Rice, aren't we? Never mind. We're not going to talk about the SAG comparison. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I figured you might say that. All right, well, Steve Largent didn't play during that time. He played under ground chuck. All right, they were running the ball with Kurt Warner a lot. Everybody knows about Pat Tillman, right? Went to Arizona State, played for the Arizona Cardinals, was a real rough-and-tumble NFL football player, well, I, and then in his prime decided, you yeah. know what? There's things that are more important after 9-11. That's right. Things are more important. I need to go out and represent my country and protect my country. Hung up the multi-million dollar, turned away a multi-million dollar contract to play in the NFL went and defended his country, and then died in friendly fire. I've since gone back and looked at Pat Tillman. He is straight out of central casting for a military soldier. He looks like a video game character with the chiseled jaw. I mean, he just looked like the greatest soldier of all time, if you go back and look at him. And then came, many months later, the tragic news that came to the United States, which was that Pat Tillman had died. God. And as the investigation continued, then we found out that Pat Tillman was was killed in what they call friendly fire. And we had the opportunity on Mitch Unfiltered to visit with the guy. Now, it's never been proven without a shadow of a doubt. It's impossible to prove. But it is widely regarded after the full investigation that our guest, Stephen Elliott, was the man who mistakenly killed Pat Tillman. And while everybody knows the Pat Tillman story, and we've all mourned about the Pat Tillman story, very few people, until we had him on, knew the Stephen Elliott story. And here he is. Unfiltered. I've been interviewing guests on my radio show and now podcasts for nearly 25 years. And I can't remember if I've ever had a genuine hero grace us with his presence 
but I can today. A man who in 2003 scrapped a bright, immediate professional future to fight for his country, defend our freedoms. What a great privilege it is to welcome into the podcast Stephen Elliott. He lives in the Northwest. He's the author of a new book called War Story. Sometimes the real fight starts after the battle. Stephen, thanks so very much for joining us on Mitch Unfiltered. Thanks so much for having me, Mitch. I'd like to begin with the present and ask you how you're doing after all that you've been through that we'll obviously discuss in the interview, living here in the Northwest. I know you're a Mariners fan. Get us up to speed on how you're feeling, how your family is, and how you're doing. Uh, really good. I mean, we have our, you know, we have our ups and downs, like uh, like any family does. And I have uh, I'm blessed with you know my wife Brooke and our two girls who are uh, 17 and seven. So that keeps life interesting <laughs> and dynamic on any given day. But yeah, we're we're doing really well, and you know all the all the regular ups and downs of life, notwithstanding, we're we're very fortunate uh, with with what we have. And and uh, and yeah, today it was uh, just leaving the Mariners game, and uh, beautiful day. Even though the Mariners came up short, um, really really fortunate to spend uh, some time this afternoon at the ballpark. Stephen, the book begins with the friendly fire that killed Pat Tillman, and continues with the devastating toll that it took on you for so many years after a problem that we can never talk about enough and do whatever it takes to get those just like you the help and support you so richly deserve Uh, i'm working my way backwards i know and then i'll skip around a little bit talk about that help talk about that support explain to us what what saved your life? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, um, you know, I mean, so you know, part of the, uh, a big part of the challenge is the fact that, you know, going into um, this war in general, um, you know, I didn't have a context for the unseen wounds of war. Um, and in fact, I think I instinctively just diminished the idea that if if you come back from war with all your fingers and toes, but, you know, you're quote unquote bummed out from having to go um, or from loss that you experienced, that just means that you're weak. And the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, we as human beings were not designed to kill other human beings. And so um, the cost of training hearts and minds to be able to take the life of others is exactly that. It costs something. And so for me, I, I think a lot of it is just being able to recognize and give words to what's going on within, uh, what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind, and, and to have permission for that to not be uh, neat and clean and tidy. And to the extent that you know, folks are struggling with you know, what they've had to see in, in a combat environment or, you know, guilt from what they've done or left undone, um, you know, uh, or what have you. I think half the battle, frankly, for me, was just being able to um, um, have other people around me invited into that conversation and affirm the fact that that's, that's more normal than not. <laughs> that just like a gunshot wound, not, not everyone leaves the combat zone with a gunshot wound or, you know, um, a physical wound. Not everyone leaves Iraq or Afghanistan or any other war zone with, um, with a, a, a wound of the heart or spirit, but a lot of people do. And, um, you know, for me, um, a lot of the journey was just being able to get to a place to where I could even name that wound and then um, invite people, uh, invite other people into that conversation um, because um, none of us were designed to live a life in isolation. We were all designed to live in community. 
And the more that we invite people into our brokenness and invite people into, um, you know, some of the darker places of our hearts, the more that there, there can be um, the opportunity for healing. The voice is Stephen Elliott, the author of a new book called War Story. I want to go back to September 11, 2001, Stephen. You were a summa cum laude student at Oral Roberts University. And that's when, not unlike Pat Tillman, by the way, your future, your immediate future plans changed. Describe what was going through your mind as you watched the terrorist attacks and how long it took you to come to grips with, I've got to do something about this. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely uh, it was definitely surreal. I was I was beginning the junior junior year of uh, my undergraduate business studies at ORU, and um, you know I, I didn't have any grand plans on military service. I, I played more than my fair share of GI Joe when I was a kid, but but I uh, I mean I plan on getting a business degree, maybe going to law school, maybe doing something else. And uh, yeah, nine eleven happened, and that was. Um, it was jarring, you know, to say the least, um, something that was distant. You know, I was in Oklahoma at the time, and that was in New York City. And initially, that felt like a whole world away. And then very quickly, you realize, um, you know, how, how small the world is. And that, you know, I even had a, a friend of mine who had graduated prior to me that was in the World Trade Center on 9-11, and he made it out okay. Mm. But then immediately you realize something that seems far removed um, becomes, you know, very close to home. And I don't know how to really describe it other than the fact that I just couldn't shake it. Like, I just couldn't shake, you know, the fact that between me and whatever else was going to happen in my life was military service. And, um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, it, it felt more like a, like if I didn't do it, I was just going to bust in two. It didn't feel like this really calm, rational sort of, um, you know, calculus as to what I'm going to do with my life. It just felt like, you know, I, I just have to do that. And if I don't do that, uh, I'm as a, as a being, I'm kind of bust apart. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's a reader's digest version, but that's, that's kind of, um, that's kind of how it played out for me. I just felt like I couldn't continue with my life without having spent some time in uniform. Steve, in April, 2004, you're deployed to the Afghanistan, Pakistan border. It's April 22nd, just a terrible unfortunate, unlucky, use whatever adjective you see fit. May I delicately and with the utmost amount of respect ask you to share with our audience, as you've done with your readers, what happened uh, from your perspective? Yeah, of course. So um, by that time, um, you know, I graduated from ORU uh, May of 2003, and then three weeks later, I, um, I, I was warmly welcomed at the United States Army at Fort Benning, Georgia, and spent, you know, six months in training, becoming, uh, effectively becoming an Army Ranger. And by uh, April 2004, uh, our, our Ranger platoon was deployed to the Afghan-Pakistan border, conducting combat operations there. And on April 22nd, um, our platoon, in in the midst of trying to accomplish multiple objectives uh, that had been assigned to us, um, you know, we were uh, my elemental platoon was ambushed, um, and um, as we fought our way through that ambush, and, and as the smoke cleared as a result of that, um, we we came to learn that we had sustained four casualties, two dead and two wounded. Um, one of those who was killed that day on April 22, 2004, was Pat Pat Hellman. Uh, who, who I served with and whose brother, Kevin, I also served with at 2nd Ranger Battalion. 
And then as those events continued to unfold, um, we learned very quickly that those casualties, Pat's death, the death of another Afghan soldier, and then the two wounded were all um, sustained as a result of friendly fire, where one part of our platoon uh, mistakenly fired on another part of the platoon, believing them to be the enemy in the midst of the confusion. Um, but obviously that being uh, not being the case. And then as that further enveloped, um, it, it became clear that there was probably two individuals more than likely that were responsible for Pat's death. And uh, I was one of those two rangers. And so um, that was the day, April 22nd, 2004, that for, for many people and for many reasons, you know, life changed dramatically. Did you ever need to know whether it was you or the other? That's a good question. Um, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. In that um, part of you wants, the part of us that I think wants the truth and just wants to know, wants to know. You know, like I just I, I want to know, like, was it was it me or was it not me or was it me and some other guy? You know what I mean? Like there's a part of us, I think, as humans that just sort of viscerally wants the truth. And that's good. And then there's another part of you that, you know, you look on balance like, you know, I know that, you know, whether my rounds um, injured or killed Pat, I know that I fired on friendlies that day. And so then another part of you feels like. You know, the ballistics report to some degree feels academic because it doesn't change, you know, if technically rounds from your weapon killed him or not, it doesn't change the fact that you made the wrong choice to fire on friendlies, even though you felt like you had good reasons to do so because you thought they were the bad guys. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that piece of it is it's complicated because it doesn't change the decision you made that day. And, uh, and at the same time, there's a part of you that certainly wants the truth, whether that truth um, is, is in one direction or the other. So I'm not sure how well that answered your question, but it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a complex reality, I guess I would put it that way. But, Stephen, you just used the words, you made the wrong choice. Did you make the wrong choice? I've seen you describe the conditions around the issue as it was being dark. It was a little bit after sunset. It was smoky. It was a, did you make the wrong choice or was this the appropriate action, just an unfortunate, terrible accident? Yeah, I mean, I think that gets back to the um, I'll give you another both and answer, I think, okay. because I've kind of went around and around and around, um, you know, on some days, you know, I felt like I was perfectly justified in what I did. And then other days I felt like, yeah. you know, I was a criminal, um, and then everywhere in between. And I think in this case, there's a both and reality that isn't necessarily exclusive for one another. And the both and reality is I'm, I, I did make the wrong choice because, um, I, objectively made the wrong choice because rounds that I fired were fired at friendly forces. You can't argue the fact that that was the right choice. Uh, and so that is true. I, I fired where there was not the enemy. Okay. At the same time, there were a variety of mitigating circumstances to include lighting, to include, you know, muzzle flashes, uh, coming from that direction to include lack of communication between the two elements, to include, 
you know, my superior firing on that position as well. So um, in that regard, uh, it was the quote unquote right decision because all of these information points pointed to the fact that this was um, an enemy position and, and we needed to fire there to defend ourselves. I guess that's part of the messy arithmetic of the whole thing is that it's it's not an I, I don't believe for me anyway to this day it's not an either or um, it's both and it's a I objectively made the wrong choice you can't argue with that because those weren't bad guys and at the same time there was lots and lots of information that I was keying off of um, that would lead me to believe that those were bad guys and I needed to shoot at um, and so that's part of the. Yeah, that's just part of the messiness of the whole thing as far as how you sort all that out. Stephen Elliott is the voice. The name of the new book is War Story. I want to get to the 24 hours later when you had, when reality you know, surfaced and you had understood what you did and then the, the days, weeks, months, and years that followed, which really is what this story is all about. Uh, but before I do that, I want to stop and ask you, Stephen, were you aware of the controversial and kind of deceptive way that our nation learned of Pat Tillman's death and the circumstances surrounding it? Uh, did you know that at the time? When did you find out that at the time? And how did you feel when you found out how we found out? Yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, so we were in country um, when that happened, obviously. And then there was a couple of investigations that took place in country. And we were told in no uncertain terms, um, you know, in the course of those investigations, you know, tell the truth. Uh, as best as you remember it, you know, you're not going to be, you know, grilled over the coals for uh, every single detail. But, but tell what happened the best that you know it. And it was no, there was no question when we were in country that, you know, the Pat was killed by friendly fire. Um, but then, you know, we went under, uh, we, we, we engaged in those investigations. And then we were back out doing raids and patrols. Um, you know, they were trying to kind of get us back on the horse, so to speak, as far as, you know, some positive momentum for our unit in the wake of such a, you know, horrific event. And so, um, you know, we're on the, the Afghan-Pakistan border. You know, we don't have uh, we don't have access to I didn't have access to, you know, I wasn't watching cable news. This is it makes me sound old. I joke with this with my 17 year old daughter. It's just like, you know back in the day before I didn't have a cell phone, you know, in 2004, it was like, we were making fun of people on deployment who spent $400 buying an iPod. It's just like, that was the cutting edge technology of today, you know? And so it's crazy to think about that as far as how much technology and just information transfer has changed in such a short period of time. But yeah, we didn't know. And we were, you know, they were working us like dogs, you know, doing raids and patrols until we came home. And then it wasn't until we came home. I mean, I just assumed that the Tillman family and everybody else had been told what we knew to be sort of an obvious truth was the fact that, well, yeah, of course he was killed by friendly fire. Um, and maybe we didn't know the specific weapon that killed him, but that was sort of academic um, at that point. And then when we got home, um, it became evident that that wasn't the case. It became evident that the family had been told a different narrative. Um, and then um, sort of the wheels fell off on the whole thing. And then, um, you know, myself and, and four others were ultimately dismissed from the Ranger Regiment because of our actions taken on that day. And so, yeah, it was a really stark reversal where you felt like there was sort of a false sense of closure where it's just like, well, you know, we, we did two investigations and we told everyone what happened and, and everyone understands kind of what happened. 
Um, but but unbeknownst to us, there was a very, very different narrative that yeah. was being portrayed yeah. um, back in the States. You speak of your demotion, Stephen. Fair or unfair? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. It's a fair question. It's yeah, it's complicated. I mean, on the one hand, being in the Ranger Regiment is um, is very much a it's, a it's a privilege, not a right. I mean, they can kick you out for any reason just because they don't they don't like you. They can get rid of you. And so there's no like there's no constitutional amendment that I'm aware of that guarantees you like the right of serving in that unit. So they can do with, with you whatever they want. And again, it kind of goes back to, you know, your previous question, which is a really good one. If you fired on friendlies, which I did for reasons that could be understandable, is there guilt or punishment associated with that? And that's, I mean, that's hard to reconcile. I mean, um, so so yeah, I mean the, the the truth of the answer is I, I don't really know, um, and and I'm not um, I'm not exactly an unbiased party, and you know assigning what my own punishment should be. You know I, I know I had no malicious intent with respect to Pat or anyone else that I served with. Yeah. I I, ha- I certainly had malicious intent with respect to who I thought was the enemy. I wanted to kill him. Um, that's why I pulled the trigger. But as far as the ramifications of that, that's part of the messiness of the story. Is that you have somebody and myself who um, believed they were doing what was the quote-unquote right thing in that instant, but it couldn't have been more the wrong thing in terms of its ramifications. And so, um, so yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't really know. I mean, um, I, I mean, I, maybe I, maybe I should have gotten kicked out of the unit, which I did, and you know, maybe I shouldn't. But at the end of the day, like whether I was a ranger or not, it doesn't change the fact that. You know, people got hurt and people died that day. You can't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, the mitigating circumstances were such that um, it's all understandable. It's just like, well, tell that to the family, you know, tell that, tell that to well, the people who lost somebody. Well, let me let me just in the in the nicest way possible say you didn't die that day, but you were hurt that day, too. Stephen. Yeah. And then the, yeah. the days and weeks and months and years that followed this horrible accident, which is what it was. Yeah. Um, if you could try to describe the sadness, the darkness, the sleepless nights, the decision of whether or not you wanted to continue living uh, in the yeah. uh, in the subsequent months and years, to the best of your ability, share with us, please. Yeah, for sure. I mean, basically, it, I mean, it, it took a while for the shock to wear off, and then once the shock kind of wore off, um, you know, um, you know, I was you know exhibiting you know, pretty classic, um, you know, chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, hypervigilance, you know, difficulty concentrating, depression, anxiety, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, and a lot of medicating with alcohol, you know, at night to try and take the edge off and just, um, you know, sleep, you know, that took a toll over a lot of years. Um, but you know, a lot of it was, you know, this sort of toxic cocktail of uh, guilt and shame. Um, it was guilt for what I uh, I had done, but then it was shame for who I felt that made me. 
Um, you know, guilt is an issue of, uh, is I have done something wrong. Um, shame is I am something wrong. And that's, um, that strikes right at the heart of your identity. And so, um, you know, I, um, I left the army in 2007 and I, you know, got hired with a big wealth management firm and, you know, did well. And the optics of my life were very positive. You know, I had a wife and I had a family and I was, you know, making good money and, you know, doing a job that, you know, people would immediately say, oh, well, you're successful. But I was pretty much just dying, you know, on the inside as I um, could never get away from the uh, the reality of, you know, war and, and um, what I had experienced, you know, in, in April 2004. So, yeah, I mean, for me, um, it was just uh, a kind of a slow grinding process of just fatigue. You know, you don't sleep well for years. You don't eat well. Um, you're not actually, I mean, there's just all sorts of things that in and of themselves are not positive, but they're just added on top of sort of the wound that you're experiencing. And then after a while, it's just like, I'm just, it's not even that I don't want to be alive. It's just that I'm just tired of being alive. <laughs> and unless somebody can show me how to like, you know, shut off this application that's running. Um, I don't want to do this anymore because I don't sleep and um, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to get free of the past that seems to be constantly invading my present. And that was, you know, my reality for, you know, over 10 years in the midst of a lot of really good things, you know, a lot of really good things in my life. It yeah. wasn't like every day was this torture chamber, yeah. Yeah. but it was this sort of persistent grinding uh, that just sort of ultimately kind of wears you down. I heard you say on a recent interview, it depended on the scorecard, right? Uh, yeah. How you were doing, how were you doing? Well, I was doing well on one scorecard, but very differently on the other scorecard, really the only scorecard that, that counts. Stephen, you you kept it quiet, obviously, for a long time. I can imagine the stress and the eating out from the inside, this information keeping quiet. And then you kind of crossed that impossible bridge by deciding to tell others about who you were and you were that Stephen Elliott and then obviously to write the book. How hard yeah. was it? How how hard was it? How difficult was it to cross that bridge? Yeah, well, I mean, um, at first, I mean, that, that bridge first started being crossed five years ago with uh, ESPN when they um, they approached us about doing a piece from the shooter's perspective on the 10 year anniversary of Pat's death. And you know, initially when they first contacted us. It was just like, yeah, there's no way I'm returning that phone call. Right. <laughs> like right. I've just spent the last, right. I've just spent the last decade, you know, artfully uh, dodging any association with even the army, let alone the Ranger Regiment, let alone Pat Tillman. And now you want me to go on television and talk about that? You know, no thanks. You know, we kind of leaned into that a little bit, and and uh, we we you know we were very candid with them and just said, well, for for us initially, it was the initial idea was well. If we're just going to talk about what happened in 2004 and that's it, that's a big waste of time because there's no shortage of sad stories that you can listen to. You don't need me for, for entertainment value. But if we're going to talk about what happened in 2004 so that we can pivot and talk about the fact that what I've experienced in terms of post-traumatic stress, what I've experienced in terms of you know, the mental illness component is not unique to me. The only thing unique about this story is the fact that it involves somebody who happened to play in the NFL. 
other than that, this story gets played out thousands and thousands of times a day. So if you're willing to talk about that and pivot towards awareness and action for solving those problems, then sign us up. And, you know, we did that in, in 20, um, I guess, 2014. And the feedback we were just we, we got from a lot of those pieces from military and civilian alike, even from a lot of civilians who, you know, they've never served in the military, but they, you know, they've dealt with, you know, all manner of, you know, um, anxiety, depression, all sorts of stuff in their own lives. Basically, the feedback we got was keep going. Um, we need to keep having these conversations. And that, again, you know, the, the, the stuff that I was dealing with was not unique. And so then that just was like, well, if, you know, if, if it helps people for us to continue to talk about this and, and further this conversation, then, um, then yeah, we'll, we'll tell the story, uh, in whatever medium that is available to us. And, you know, the immediate medium that was available to us was a book. And so once we sort of crossed that bridge, um, there's kind of no going back in a way, particularly in this environment, you know, you can't all of a sudden, um, I can't go to ESPN and just delete my interviews. <laughs> those are sort of like, yeah. as, as long as we have like an electrical grid and an internet, those are sort of like part of our culture. And so that's really, a, in a way, that's a, that's a really good thing because it's just like, well, screw it. I guess this is what we're doing because you have certain days where you question whether or not that's a good idea. But yeah, essentially, you know, it feels like to us, like I don't have this like, I don't have this like big existential moment every day where I say, you know, these are the big reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing. If I didn't get up and in whatever capacity was available to me and tell our story, um, I just feel like I would kind of bust. So it's not even so much like I'm making some big grand decision to do good. I just feel like I don't know what else I would do because I know that I'm not alone. I know that the unseen wounds of war, whether they're for people who have worn a uniform or not, are not confined to me. And I don't want those people to suffer in isolation like I did for so long. Did I see and read where 20 vets take their lives every day? Is that right? Roughly 22, according to the VA's own numbers. Yeah. Ugh. Did you ever consider reaching out to the Tillman family? You said you had a relationship with Kevin. What's your relationship with that family? Or is that just something that is incomplete and uh, needs to play out over the, the next many years? Yeah, I mean, um, I've, I've had um, a few years ago, um, you know, I, I finally had the guts to kind of reach out to Pat's mom and um, uh, Mary Tillman. And, and she's been incredibly gracious and incredibly kind to us. And, um, you know, she's been, she, to my knowledge, she hasn't read the book. She, she knows that I've written the book and has been supportive of that. She hasn't endorsed it by any means, but she's been very supportive of the idea of me sharing my perspective. And yeah, I mean, uh, we, we were, you know, in 2016, my wife and I had the privilege of sitting with her and, and um, sharing with her and, and connecting with her. And yeah, she's, she's been a very, not to speak for her, not to put you know, any words in her mouth, but she's been a very kind and gracious uh, person in our lives as we've kind of walked through the latter stages of this journey. The name of the book is War Story. Sometimes the real fight starts after the battle. Stephen Elliott is the author. And I wanted to ask you to answer your own question, if you don't mind. Mm. I, saw, sure. I saw a video before we started this interview, and you asked, and I think I've got the, the question verbatim here. You said, 
what do I do with the fact that I hurt people? What do Mm. I do with the fact that sometimes I hurt them unintentionally and other times on purpose? What do I do with that? And that's a very personal question. And I ask you that question. I ask you to answer that question for my own well-being and for others that are listening to this podcast and thinking, geez, I'd like to hear what Stephen has to say about that. Yeah. Some questions are easier to ask than they are to answer, aren't they? Um, So I think in my own life, I've gotten in the most trouble by trying to justify my actions and trying to divorce myself from the damage, albeit unintentional, of my actions. And, and, And that never works out very well for me. When I turn into my own defense attorney, providing an apologetic for why what I did you should be okay with, and I'm just kind of sorry how that turned out. Where I've experienced life and where I've experienced growth of relationship and and, um, new life, even in places where I thought that that was impossible, was when... I looked pretty plainly at the ramifications of my decisions, as ugly as those might be, and I just said, I am sorry. Not, I'm sorry for how that made you feel, not, I'm sorry for what you thought about that, but just, I am sorry. And that's a, um, that's a really hard place to get to because it strikes right at the very core of our ego. I don't like to be wrong. I don't like to be um, on the wrong side of what is right, and, and I don't certainly don't like to be seen as weak. I don't like to be seen as mistaken. But so oftentimes, you know, moving forward in relationship just requires us to say that, not just say it, but actually recognize that, you know, I might have had really good intentions, but this was just garbage. <laughs> and what I did, even with the best of intentions, turned out really poorly, and I have to own that. And I have to learn from that. And I need to tell you that that I'm really sorry for that. I'm willing to basically lower my shield, lower my defenses, and accept whatever attack that you have against me. And I just have to accept that. And that's hard. And it's easier for me to say that on, on this show than it is, I mean, I will... I'll go home this evening to, you know, a wonderful wife and two daughters. And inevitably at some point, probably within the next 24 hours, I will have an opportunity to either um, forgive or take offense. And I will have the opportunity to need to ask for forgiveness because I'll do something or say something inevitably with three other women in the house that probably won't go over very well. (laughs) So I will need their grace and their forgiveness, not because I was trying to hurt them, but just because I'm imperfect and I say, and I do stupid things. And so, um, I don't know how much sense that makes, Makes but I think makes a lot uh, of sense. I think that, 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 that's what's been helpful. To me. And we should point out part of this story, one of the lovelier parts of this story. You lost your marriage. You went through, I believe, divorce, and then you remarried yeah. your, your, your wife. So that part of this story makes us all feel feel pretty good. 
Yeah, it's definitely yeah. We've 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 already divorced each other, so we don't uh, really entertain that anymore. Um, and so we're kind of stuck with each other at this point. So yeah, well, that's definitely an interesting part of the story. Well, Stephen, I just want to say, as someone who has experienced darkness, not anything like you, I'm certain, and as a person who didn't reach out for help and made terrible mistakes that have devastated loved ones, I can't tell you how powerful and courageous and helpful your willingness to speak out on a fragile subject is guilt and shame. It uh, hits really, really close to home with me, the host of this podcast, Mm. and I know that it uh, has to resonate with so many in our listening audience. And I should say that as Father's Day approaches, uh, I don't even hesitate to say that there's not a dad in our audience that I know that wouldn't be thrilled to read your story both to better understand what so many of our heroes go through and to a further appreciate how lucky we really all have it. My dad used to say, may he rest in peace, that if we all sat in a big circle and threw our troubles into the middle, you'd race, mm. you'd race to get your own troubles back, Stephen. <laughs> and, That's uh, great. And I just, I, I appreciate your story. I appreciate your courageousness. I you're a hero, and I hope the book does great. How's the book done so far? So far, really good. I mean, if my mother in Kansas is any measure, I mean, I think she's buying up all the copies of Walmart. So, um, no, I mean, the, they, we don't have numbers yet, but the the anecdotal feedback is really, really positive, and and it's it's so encouraging uh, to us as we as we hear some of those stories. Blessings to you, Stephen. Uh, thank you for sharing with us. Maybe the next time you'll come on and we'll talk Mariner baseball or Seahawks football <laughs> or something a little a little lighter than the subject that yeah. we just discussed for the last half hour. But I, I really am indebted, and I don't know if there's ever indirectly something a guy like me can do for you. I'm all ears, and I'm ready to help. Thanks so much, Mitch. That's so kind. Stephen Elliott from back on episode 42 The name of the book is War Story, just another in a long line of easy people to root for. If you're ever looking for a spot to have great pizza and a fantastic selection of craft beer and a comfortable place to watch sports, Zeke's Pizza is now all over it. Nothing quite like a nice summer's evening with a cherry bomb or Puget Pounder and an ice-cold craft beer at one of the Zeke's Pizza locations, and you'll be supporting a very important partner of Mitch Unfiltered. If you're home and not in the mood to go out and you want some Northwest-style pizza, craft beer delivered to your door, Zeke'sPizza.com. It's fast and easy. No third-party delivery service. Zeke's Pizza representatives arrive at your door. If you're ever looking for a good spot to take your youth baseball team after a big game with lots of tables and a staff that bends over backwards to make that lunch or dinner just right for the team and some of the parents, Zeke's Pizza is another opportunity. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. All right, Hotshot Scott, continuing on episode 80, something a little different. We have taken the 400 interviews that we've done on Mitch Unfiltered, and we have boiled them down to four. Yep. We're replaying the four interviews that moved us the most or made us laugh or entertained us the most. You just heard the Stephen Elliott story. Yes. You did a great job with him. I told you before. It's not, you. not me sucking up to you. That was one of your... It was a master class in interviewing, I have to say. And you know what kills me to give you any compliment at Thank any time. You. Yes. But what do you think about Stephen Elliott? I, when I first listened to it, I thought I'd be kind of bummed out more and more. And obviously it's tragic and what he went through is awful. And 
and but that here at the end that he and his wife reconciled it kind of helped me a little bit knowing that okay maybe maybe some good can come out of this and he can he can start living his life again so i was happy to hear that that he's back with his wife but it's a bigger picture we talk about mental health all the time on this podcast you know that's right that's and, right and you don't i never even crossed my mind to think about oh yeah who was the guy who has to live with that every day so I think it was and important I, I, to hear. And I think I think I certainly we we don't pretend to know what's really going on with Stephen Elliott and his day to day life, but more so than just the marriage surviving or the them coming back together, just the fact that he had sunk so low, and that you know this could have been and probably should have been with many people the undoing might have been the end of him. Yep. For him to be able to rally and get his life together and seek therapy and 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 find a way. Uh, out of the darkness and into the light. It's it's not, again, these are people on all, all of these segments, these are people that are very easy to root for. Right. That's a great way to put it. You're right. Yeah. So easy to root for him. He was just trying to serve his country, something I didn't do. He's out there and this is, you know, this is his unfortunate lot. The PS to that to that interview that people don't know is he contacted me after that interview and he said I was really touched by some of the questions and the oh. and the and and the the kind of contribution that I made from my story. He said, "Would you would you meet with me?" And I said, "Sure." And we spent two hours together, uh, an hour and a half together at Starbucks here in town. He came, he he drove up, and we met, and it was it was wow. really it was really great. I had no idea. Yeah, it was really really great. You had a good conversation with incredible him. Incredible conversation, very uplifting and and very encouraging and and uh, very helpful for where I was in my life and where I am in my life. So I thought I'd update you on that. I love it. That's great. I had no idea. No idea you guys met and had a nice chat. That was number one. That was interview number one on our final four, on our, on our fabulous four on episode 80. Number two is a little more jovial. It's a little more fun. It's a little more unbelievable. No, probably not a more unbelievable than Stephen Elliott. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think he could get there. But my old friend, John Bracken, who I've known since I came to town. So 25 years, he's a friend of mine for 25 years. He's also Freddie Couples' best buddy. Oh, okay. And has been for many years since they were junior golfers together. Gotcha. Well, because of Couples' agent who knew Michael Jordan's agent, in 1996, when the NBA Finals were being played here in Seattle Game 3, Michael Jordan came to town on a Sunday. They didn't play until like Tuesday or Wednesday. And my buddy, John Bracken got a call asking him if he would host Michael Jordan for a day, which became two days. And that story is a legendary story, a story that John Bracken told us on episode 23. Unfiltered. Episode 23, uh, and it's named after Michael Jordan. There's no debating that. I thought that I would call in a guest on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, an old friend of mine who used to play a little golf, a little junior golf uh, in the in the Seattle area. And you were pretty good, right, John Bracken? My old friend John Bracken is on the horn. You were the best junior golfer in Seattle, right? In the 1970s, in the mid 1970s and the late yeah, 1970s. Not really, not really Mitchell, you know, better than that. Freddie couples used to, uh, 
Look at I I got a lot of runner ups and I got a lot of thirds and fourths. I got very few very few blue ribbons. Uh, all right, so you've got a story to tell us and I'm I'm excited to hear it again cuz you haven't told me this story in probably 10 or 12 or 13 years. So I'm still a little foggy about some of the details. But pick up the story of the Sonics and the Bulls playing in the 19, what, 96 NBA championship series and how that changed your your view of the world a little bit. What happened? Tell us what happened. Yeah, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I've told it several times. Obviously, Michael Jordan is, uh, you know, was and is an icon. And, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a crazy experience. Uh, it was the 96 season. The Sonics were playing the Bulls in the championship series. And the Sonics lost the first two games on the road to Chicago. And uh, as I recall it, they lost game two on a Sunday. And so the next morning, uh, you know, the Sonics are down 2-0 in the series, and they're coming out for game three, which for some reason wasn't going to be played till Wednesday. And so I'm in my office, uh, you know, gearing up in, in you know, early to mid-June, selling sponsorships and coordinating the golf tournament for Fred that you mentioned. And I get a call uh, fairly early in the morning, 8.30-ish, from Lynn Roach. And Lynn was and is Fred Couples' agent. And Lynn calls me and he says, what are you doing this morning? And I said, well, I'm, I'm just working. Why? And he said, well, uh, I got a call from a guy in Chicago who is a one of Michael Jordan's managers and agents, and his name is Peter DeYoung. And Peter knew that, uh, you know, Fred was a Seattle guy and was wondering if maybe he had a connection because Michael wanted to play some golf in Seattle. Geez, Michael's out there. Game game three is until Wednesday. They're doing a little media day this morning, Monday morning, and he'd really like to play some golf in the afternoon if you'd be willing to take him. And I said, sure. And he said, you know, let me just tell you one thing. He said, Michael's great. He said, if you really want to enjoy yourself with him, don't ask him for any autographs. Just just treat him like a normal guy and have a little fun with him. You know, he'll want to gamble a little bit and just just play and enjoy yourself. He said, trust me, you're going to have the time of your life. And he said, I'm going to call Michael and uh, I'll have him call you. And I said, okay. And so I hang up, and I'm thinking, really, Michael Jordan's going to call me. Okay, how's this going to go? So I have got a receptionist and assistant at the time. And so I go out, and I, you know, Mitch, you know how we are. You know, we all have friends that like to pull pranks on us, and I'm no exception. So I have friends who kind of spoof me every once in a while, and I do it to them. And so. The last thing I wanted was for Michael to actually call and have my assistant think it was some joke. So I run out there and I said, hey, listen, uh, I don't know if this is going to happen, but if somebody calls and says it's, and you ask who it is and they say Michael Jordan, don't laugh at them. I mean, just, just say, yes, I'm here. And so sure enough, two minutes later, the phone rings and, and, you know, she gets these, you know, great big fish eyes and, you know, points and like, Michael Jordan's on the line. He's like, hi, John, this is Michael Jordan. And, you know, what's your schedule? And he said, well, we got a media day. He said, do you know where the key arena is? And I said, yeah, I know where the key arena is. And yeah, I mean, it was comical. He tells me then he says, what, what kind of car will you be driving? 
And I said, well, I've got a green Ford Explorer. And he said, okay, perfect. Why don't we just say 115, just come to the uh, player's parking and just tell them you're coming to pick me up. And he said, is it okay if I bring my buddy Quinn Buckner and another friend of mine who's a a golf pro at Duke University named Eddie I? And I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. Now, is he going to have his golf clubs at Key Arena during media day in between games two and three does he have his clubs right there is he renting clubs what is he doing john no no he's he's got his no i didn't even think you know i was just sort of caught up in this whole thing is this really going to happen i didn't ask him any of that um but as it turns out he had his clubs okay and um so what happens is i i I pull up i get there about 110 i'm you know i'm i'm on time guy (laughs) and i i get there a little early and there's you know there's cops all over the place and this one cop stops me like okay what you know what do you want and i roll my window down i said well i'm (laughs) i'm here to pick up michael jordan And the cop literally starts laughing. He says, yeah, right. Okay. And, and about that time, as I'm saying that, another policeman starts walking towards the other guy. And he says, he's like, you know, Green Explorer, are you here to pick up Michael? And now the, the policeman that I'm engaging with, now he realizes this, that this is for real. And he says, yeah, come on. You know, he waves me on and I pull into that player parking lot yeah. right on the side of Key Arena. And literally within one or two minutes, out walks Michael Jordan, and he's with a couple other guys, and, and it's it's Quinn Buckner and Eddie I, his buddy, and they've got a van there. And uh, so he said, okay, uh, you know, these these guys will follow us. I'll ride with you. So he hops in my Ford Explorer, and his clubs were in the van. I see. Yeah. He just said, yeah, I'm going to just leave my clubs there. And they follow me out. We end up going to Inglewood, yeah. uh, which you know Inglewood, obviously. Right. We had had Fred's tournament there. Um, actually, we were having it there in 96 and 7. We played it there a couple of years. So anyway, uh, we uh, we couldn't play Broadmoor, which is my home course, because it was, there was a charity event there. This was a Monday. And so I called Rick Adele, and he said, sure, come on out. So we go out there. Michael says, you know, how about we play a little team game and then, you know, I'll just play all you guys. John, I'll play you. What's your handicap? And I was at two, one or two. And so I gave Michael two aside, as I recall. He was a five or, he, he was a five or six. Yeah, he was a five or six. I think I was a one and he was like a five. So I gave him two aside. All right. And and he said, how about we play, a, you know, twenty dollar automatic two downs or press when you're when you're mad or if you want to before you're two down. And so off we go. And Michael birdies the first hole, the, you know, fairly easy par five. I make par and we're walking to the second tee. And I said, I press. And he just started <laughs> laughing and he started calling me Johnny boy, Johnny boy. I like it. I like it. You know, you can't hide this guy. I mean, Michael Jordan, you know, you just can't hide him. He's so recognizable. And so we're going along, and, you know, all of a sudden there's, you know, five, and then there's 10, and then there's 15, and then there's 20 carts, and they're following <laughs> us. And, uh, 
and he gets a little, you know, he makes a couple comments to me, and, and, and then he says, we're having a great time, and he says to me on about the 16th or 17th hole, he says, hey, uh, what do you got going tomorrow? And I said, well, I don't know why. And he says, well, uh, you know, we don't play till Wednesday. You, you know, can we can we play again tomorrow? But can we play somewhere a little quieter, if you know what I mean? <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, yeah. I said, I'll tell you what, we can, I can take you to my home course. I, it'll be a lot quieter over there at Broadmoor because, you know, the members don't have their own carts that they can drive out from their house. So, yeah, let's do that. And nope. he says, is it okay if – if Quinn and Eddie come and, and, and would you mind if I bring my, my two security guys that are just fun guys, you'll like them and CT and Gust, he said, and I said, (laughs) yeah, that's fine. Now, now what I found out, you know, what I did find out, and this is one of my favorite parts about Michael CT and Gust had been Michael's father's best friends. Uh And they were older gentlemen, and they were, you know, and I'll I'll get to that when I get to the second day of golf. But it was really cool because Michael just took it upon himself to employ these guys. And, you know, after his father passed away, which was, you know, I don't know the details of it, but obviously a very sad, traumatic thing in his life. And he just took CT and Gus under his wing and, and just said, come on, you guys are with me. I'm going to take care of you. You know, he gave them titles. And, you know, these guys at the time were, I'm going to say, in their mid-60s, and they were Michael Jordan security guys. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway, we had a great time. Off we went, you know. I drop him off. They're staying at the time. It was still a four season. Hold on, hold on, the- hold on, hold on. You can't get ahead of the story. What did Michael shoot? What did John Bracken shoot? What were the, the what was the money that changed hands? You can't, you can't uh, yada 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 <laughs> me past that. Come on. I, I honestly don't recall exactly what we shot. I I know that I won eighty dollars. Okay. <laughs> okay. But but we agreed that since we were going to play the next day, that no money would exchange hands. We'd just roll it into the next day. Did Michael Jordan that, break eighty? You know, I don't think Michael Jordan did. I think, as I recall, I shot like seventy five, and he shot like eighty two. Okay. Something. All right. Okay. I got okay. you. And, and Inglewood, as you know, is a par 73, so it's a little different. Yeah, okay. And, and it's a hard course for someone who's never played it. Okay. Yeah, you know, it really is. Okay. Uh, so anyway, um, I drop him off at the hotel, you know, just pull in there and drop him off at, at what's now the Fairmont at 4th and University downtown. And he said, okay, how about uh, can we – can we, you know, just do the same thing? Can you pick me up at 115 in the same spot? I said, sure, I, I'm there. And so off I go the next day, and uh, the policeman's waiting for me. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to question you. I know who you are. Come on. And and Michael, Michael's, you know, he, I pop out of the car. He introduces me to CT and Gust, and he says, look, is it okay to follow you? We're in, in this van. You just go ahead and drive, and we'll just follow you. Okay. And I said, fine. Okay. We tee off. S- same group, Eddie I, Quinn Buckner, myself, and Michael. And uh, it, was, it was fairly quiet. We got up there on the first tee. No problem. We have carts. Yeah, I get I get CT and Gust an extra cart. Yeah, and it was a nice June day. I mean, it was a beautiful day, probably seventy five, you know, ish or more. And uh, CT has this, uh, you know, kind of like a track suit zip up top on. 
and I and because he's got a, a sort of a mock neck under it, and I said, hey, see. CT, you know, you, we're out here. You can you can take that off. And he said, No, John, I I, I got to keep that on. I, I'm packing. <laughs> I said, Oh, you're packing. Okay, well, you you do whatever you're comfortable doing there. And uh, but those guys could not have been nicer. Um, so we play same game. Let me step in, John. Did did the did the subject of the NBA Finals? I mean, we're still in the middle of games two and three. They're up two games to none. Now it's the Tuesday. It's the day before Game Three, uh, and a lot of us remember vividly Game Three at the Key Arena. Did the the series come up? Did the Sonics come up? Did any conversation happen about the Bulls and the Sonics? Did a little later, but not not in very much detail. I will tell you, uh, we did get to the sixth green at Broadmoor, if you can remember the sixth green. And there's a home just to the right of the sixth green. And, and again, you know, there isn't a home on Broadmoor until you get to the sixth hole. And the woman that lived on the sixth green comes out with a tray of lemonade as we're putting out, <laughs> all with sonic souvenir plastic cups of lemonade. And Michael did get a kick out of that. And he made a, he made a joke. He made a joke about, hey, you know, are you trying to poison me? And we all laughed. And... Uh, she meant well, and and then so that's the first time basketball or even you know the Sonics and anything had come up. I I didn't ask him a single thing, and and then we're playing and we get to the back nine, and we're on about fifteen, part five, and we're walking, and now it's about, you know, I'm going to say it's four o'clock, four fifteen, four twenty, something like that, and he said uh, he says, hey, so uh, what time does it get dark here? And I said, well, you know, this time of year, it stays light till, you know, almost 10 o'clock, 9.30, 9.45, almost 10 o'clock. And he said, well, you know, what do you, what do you have going after this? I mean, can we, can we play, keep playing? Can we play some more? And then I started thinking, and I did say, so I said, I'm like, this guy's got a game, and he wants to play 36 holes, and he's got a game, <laughs> game three of the NBA championship finals, and he wants to play 36 really? holes. Really? Yeah. And so I said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I can. I'm going to need to make a phone call when we get in. But, yeah, I think, I think we can do that. And he said, great. It's just so nice out here. I'd love to just play till dark. <laughs> so, so now we come up, and we're on 18, and I can see there's probably, you know, 30 people, you know, kind of on the right by the clubhouse just watching because the 18th green sits down below the clubhouse. And, and as we're coming up to the green, he says, hey, uh, you know, do you mind if we just go up to the first tee, you know, wh- why are you going to make your call? And I, I said, no, that's fine. And he says, and then we get on the green and he said, hey, by the way, is there a McDonald's anywhere near here? <laughs> and I said, yeah, there's, you know, and I'm thinking of the McDonald's right by the <laughs> University Village right there on 25th. And so I tell him, and he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, you tell C.T. and Gust where that is. Give them directions. And so I, I tell him where it is, and Michael pulls out a couple hundred out of his wallet, a couple C-notes, and he flips them to C.T. and Gust, and he, he says, okay, you know, and he talks to him. I don't know exactly what he says, but all I know is, he, you know, they were heading towards McDonald's. And so I get up to the first tee, and, those guys have already hit, and, and now I hit, and we go off, and we get to the just off on the third tee, the par three, and here comes CT and Gus in the cart, <laughs> and they have three bags, 
and they've got cheeseburgers and french fries and, and they come right to me first i couldn't believe it. he comes right to me and he said here john you want you want some to eat yeah. i look in there and i i said yeah sure and i i grab a cheeseburger uh, and ct says is that all you want and i said well I'll, I'll get another one later and he says no no you grab what you want you grab what you want now when when michael and quinn and Eddie, I when they get, they're going to eat them all. So you, so I grab a second one, and and they also had, which was I was a little surprised. They also had a couple six packs of Budweiser beer. Oh, okay. All of a sudden, then Michael lights up this big Churchill cigar, and so does Quinn Buckner. I don't think Eddie, I did. They offered me one. I didn't have one, but. You know, Michael just puffed on this long cigar, and he probably had two, you know, I don't want to exaggerate this, but two, maybe three beers, no more than uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. So it's not like he, you know, was out there getting looped or anything, but <laughs> I just thought, okay, here we are. Now we're less than 24 hours from game time, okay? And he's having ch- McDonald's cheeseburgers, <laughs> French fries, Budweiser beers, and a cigar. So what you're saying, and, and you're saying, John, is is that uh, he was showing an unusual amount of stress. He was really stressed out about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just, you know what? It just, it just really just struck me that wow, this guy is some kind of just genuine fun guy. I, I mean, I really had a ball with him. I really did. And. So now we're having fun and we're playing and and uh, as the round went on, he asked me. He said, "Hey, are you know, are you going to the game? You know, do you want to go to the game tomorrow?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I I'm actually going." And he said, "Well, let me." He said, "Let me get you tickets." And I said, "Well, I, I've already got tickets." And he said, "No, let let me. I can get you really good tickets. Let me, please. I'd love to get you good tickets." And I said, "Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. But I've got good tickets. I, don't worry about me." And he goes, "No, really. I, I, and finally, I said, "Look at. I've got good tickets." He said, "Okay, okay." <laughs> so now we get we're playing, and and uh, I take a, another. I think I want a hundred and forty or sixty dollars <laughs> off him. So over two days, not not again. So so he he pays me. We're done. They drove their own car there, so now they're off on their own. I don't have to take them back down to the Four Seasons. And he says, "Geez, thanks a lot. We had a lot of fun." And off they went. Give us a guess. What did he shoot the three days combined? What did Michael Jordan shoot the three you know, the three rounds combined? He broke he broke eighty at Broadmoor one of the rounds. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what he was. He was a really good chipper. I was surprised what a good chipper he was. He putted cross-handed. He was a pretty good putter. The only time that he, he, he when he tried to hit it hard, he'd hit a, sometimes he'd hit a big kind of roundhouse hook that got him in trouble. Yeah. But, uh, but I was really impressed with his short game and his touch around the greens, which I guess I shouldn't be. I mean, great hand-eye coordination, obviously, with a guy that, you know, can handle the ball like he did, and a great free throw shooter and great long range shooter. So, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think he probably shot like seventy nine, eighty two at uh, Broadmoor, something okay. like that. Okay. And uh, so he paid me like one hundred and sixty bucks, one hundred and eighty bucks for the two days. We laughed. He went off. And then the next next night, uh, Wednesday night, game three, the first game in Seattle. I had split 
courtside seats for the whole season with a buddy of mine and I had the tickets to this game and I took my wife and we're sitting there and literally like the free throw line first row facing the visitor bench and I'm looking the whole game I'm looking and right behind the bench there's CT and Gus. I mean, they're sitting right behind the bench, the, the Bulls bench. And, you know, I didn't see him or wave to him or anything like that. You know, I'm just sitting there minding my own business. Yeah. And right before halftime, there's maybe 14 seconds to go in the half. And, of course, the, the Bulls have the ball, and they're going to hold for one shot. And Michael has the ball, and he's got huge hands. And he – He's palming this ball, holding it, you know, kind of way away. And Gary Payton, and and he's really about maybe 10 feet from me. And he's holding this ball, and Gary Payton is swatting at him and trying to get the ball. And he somehow he gets a piece of the ball, and the ball goes, and they both dive for it, and they land right at my feet at the guy right next to me, and they spill his beer. And, And Michael is laying on the ground. He's two and a half feet from me. And he looks up, and he sees me, and he says, nice seats, Johnny boy. (laughs) And and I kind of laugh, and then he says, little tougher game than golf, huh? (laughs) And and the guy next to me whose beer he spilled, he looks at me, and he says, do you know him? (laughs) And, And I said, you know, I wasn't even about, I said, no, I don't know what he's doing. Cause I, I didn't even know where to start with a guy of how I could ever try and explain how this whole thing came to pass. Well, we appreciate you telling us the story. I think that uh, a lot of people in our audience will get a kick. Didn't, uh, didn't know the story of how Michael Jordan spent the days in between games two and three in the NBA finals in 1996 in Seattle. Great stuff. Thank you, John. Thank you for sharing with us the blow by blow description of your time with Michael Jordan. Happy to, happy to share it with you. Good being with you, Mitch. Talk to you later. My old friend, John Bracken back on, you guessed it, Episode 23, exactly where you'd expect. Bet you didn't know how Michael Jordan spent the three days in Seattle in 1996 before Game 3 of the NBA Finals. Well, now you do. Super proud to be associated with my corporate partners for Mitch Unfiltered because each one of them is a natural and comfortable relationship for me and my family. And everything about the Northwest Premier Wealth Manager Evergreen Golf Call fits like a glove. Founded three decades ago, homegrown, headquartered right here in downtown Bellevue, super successful, spreading down the West Coast, offices now in Portland, San Francisco, and the Napa Valley. It's not a commission-based firm. It's a group that invests in the very same way as their clients, managing over two billion dollars in assets headed by Tyler Hay, who was voted one of the 40 under 40 by the Puget Sound Business Journal, and he loves hoops. He thinks he can play a little bit, but that's let's not break the news to him just yet. If you go to the Bellevue Boys and Girls Club and watch the kids play hoops, you'll see Evergreen Golf Call on the back of every jersey, and I just love that. A commitment to the community and philanthropic efforts. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. And as we continue episode 82 of our four interviews in the book, John Bracken and his two days with the greatest basketball player of all time just randomly asked to host on the golf course 
The great Michael Jordan. The more I think about that, the more I think that might, that might be a movie. That could be a movie. I don't know who's going to play Michael Jordan, but it's the, I was, my daughter was in the car. We were listening to it. And the part where he turned down the tickets for Michael Jordan, my daughter's like, I never want to turn those down. Who, who would turn down tickets for Michael Jordan? How about the fact that in the middle of the next game, they find themselves underneath his chair. Right. And he looks up and says, hey, Johnny boy, you do have good seats or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Pretty good seats you got there, Johnny boy. <laughs> Don't the you Mc- love that? The cigars and McDonald's. Oh, He's in the middle God. of the NBA finals. Win Buckner, the whole thing. <laughs> right. the, it was, do I thought, you know where the key arena is? Yeah, I love, do you know where the key arena is? And him telling the I'm here to pick up Michael Jordan. I'm here to- yeah, you and everybody else, buddy. Beat it. And then Jordan walks up. Hi. That's interview number two. Interview number three, episode 44. A Rob Sarah is his name. You wouldn't ordinarily know that name, but you're going to know it now. He was a young New York City firefighter. In fact, he hadn't even started, right? He hadn't even started his after his training. He had just finished with training or he was finishing up with training. And it was like his first day as a firefighter in New York City. Yeah, I don't think he was even supposed to start yet. But he no. said, uh, he said, I'm, I'm in September I, the 11th, yeah. 2001. He's called to the World Trade Center and let him describe what happens next. Unfiltered. So this is going to be one of those segments that we do from time to time on Mitch Unfiltered, where we wander away from sports to discuss something of the utmost importance, something that might put sports in its proper perspective. Back on Tuesday, former talk show host and comedian John Stewart appeared in front of the House Judiciary Committee to essentially beg for the extension of funding for our 9-11 heroes, those first responders to the World Trade Center scene many of whom have died since from the toxic conditions under which they serve thousands and thousands of others who are living with cancer and countless respiratory illnesses as a result of their selfless actions. One of whom will join us in this very segment of Mitch Unfiltered. If you haven't heard the exasperated and moving words of Jon Stewart, here they are. I want to thank Mr. Collins and Mr. Naylor for putting this together, but uh, as I sit here today, I can't help but think what an incredible metaphor this room is for the entire process that getting health care and benefits for 9-11 first responders has come to. Behind me, a filled room of 9-11 first responders, and in front of me, a nearly empty Congress. Sick and dying, they brought themselves down here to speak to no one. It's shameful. It's an embarrassment to the country and it is a stain on this institution. And you should be ashamed of yourselves for those that aren't here, but you won't be. Because accountability doesn't appear to be something that occurs in this chamber. We don't want to be here. Lou doesn't want to be here. None of these people want to be here. But they are, and they're not here for themselves. They're here to continue fighting for what's right. Lou's going to go back for his 69th chemo. The great Ray Pfeiffer would come down here, his body riddled with cancer and pain, where he couldn't walk. And the disrespect shown to him and to the other lobbyists on this bill 
is utterly unacceptable. You know, I used to get, I, I, would, I would be so angry at the latest injustice that's done to these men and women. And, uh, uh, you know, another business card thrown our way uh, as a way of, of shooing us away. Like children, trick-or-treating, rather than the heroes that they are and will always be. Ray would say, calm down, Johnny, calm down. I got all the cards I need. And he would tap his pocket. Where he kept the prayer cards. 343 firefighters. The official FDNY response time to 9-11 was five seconds. Five seconds. That's how long it took for FDNY, for NYPD, for Port Authority, for EMS, to respond to an urgent need from the public. Five seconds. Hundreds died in an instant. Thousands more poured in to continue to fight for their brothers and sisters. The breathing problem started almost immediately and they were told they weren't sick, they were crazy. And then, as the illnesses got worse and things became more apparent, well, okay, you're sick, but it's not from the pile. And then, when the science became irrefutable, okay, it's the pile, but this is a New York issue. I don't know if we have the money. And I'm sorry if I sound angry and undiplomatic, but I'm angry, and you should be too, and they're all angry as well, and they have every justification to be that way. There is not a person here, there is not an empty chair on that stage that didn't tweet out, never forget the heroes of 9-11, never forget their bravery, never forget what they did, what they gave to this country. Well, here they are. And where are they? And it would be one thing if their callous indifference and rank hypocrisy were benign, but it's not. Your indifference costs these men and women their most valuable commodity, time. It's the one thing they're running out of. This should be flipped. This hearing should be flipped. These men and women should be up on that stage and Congress should be down here answering their questions as to why this is so damn hard and takes so damn long. And why no matter what they get, something's always pulled back and they gotta come back. Mr. Johnson, you, you, you made a point earlier, and it was one that we have heard over and over again in these halls, and I, I, I couldn't help but to answer to it, which was, you said, look, you know, you guys are obviously heroes, and 9-11 was a big deal, but, you know, we have a lot of stuff here to do. And, uh, you know, we got to make sure there's money for a variety of uh, uh, disasters, hurricanes, and tornadoes. But this wasn't a hurricane, and this wasn't a tornado. And by the way, that's your job anyway. We can't fund these programs, you can. Setting aside that no American in this country should face financial ruin because of uh, a health issue. Certainly 9-11 first responders shouldn't have to decide whether to live or to have a place to live. 
And the idea that you can only give them five more years of the VCF because you're not quite sure what's going to happen five years from now. Well, I can tell you, I'm pretty sure what's going to happen five years from now. More of these men and women are going to get sick and they are going to die. And I am awfully tired of hearing that it's a, a 9-11 New York issue. Al-Qaeda didn't shout death to Tribeca. They attacked America and these men and women and their response to it is what brought our country back. It's what gave a reeling nation a solid foundation to stand back upon, to remind us of why this country is great, of why this country is worth fighting for, and you are ignoring them. And you can end it tomorrow. Why this bill isn't unanimous consent and a standalone issue is beyond my comprehension. And I have yet to hear a reasonable explanation for why. It'll get stuck in some transportation bill or some appropriations bill and get sent over to the Senate where a certain someone from the Senate will use it as a political football to get themselves maybe another new import tax on petroleum. Because that's what happened to us in 2015. And we won't allow it to happen again. Thank God for people like John Field. Thank God for people like Ray Pfeiffer. Thank God for all of these people who will not let it happen. They responded in five seconds. They did their jobs with courage, grace, tenacity, humility. 18 years later, do yours. Thank you. Just an amazing nine-minute speech by John Stewart to the House Judiciary Committee on behalf of the first responders and the Victim Compensation Fund. And now joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, and it's a privilege to have him. A guy who was only, what, 21 years old on September 11, 2001, Rob. Rob Sarah joins us on the uh, Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Rob, thanks for being with us. If you wouldn't mind, I know you've been asked a million times, and I, I delicately ask a million and first time for you to tell tell your story of September 11, 2001. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me on. Um, like you said, I was 21 on, on September 11th. I, I just finished up the academy on the 10th, uh, and I was off that day. I was, I was driving out to Long Island to... Uh, try out for the FDNY hockey team when uh, I saw the towers on fire and uh, obviously changed my plans and, and made my way to ground zero. Um, so that was my first day and uh, that's where it all started for me. So you hadn't even begun your new job as a New York City firefighter. You were supposed to begin the next day, is that right? Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure it was the next day or, or the day after. You know, we all had different days to report to our firehouses. Um, so I don't know when I was scheduled to work, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was ripping the tags off my gear on the bus on the way there. Unbelievable. Uh, much to the uh, delight of the guys making fun of me. So yeah. And your, and your older brother was a firefighter. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he got on a few years before me. Uh, he's still, uh, active now. He's a captain. Uh, so yeah, he's, he was there too. And, and you called him on the way to the scene? I did, because uh, I didn't know what to do. You know, I'd, I'd never been to a fire before, but I could see, obviously, uh, you know, they were going to need some help. So I called him, 
and he's the one who told me to go home and get my gear uh, instead of just driving straight there, which obviously I'm thankful for. And so can you tell us, to the best of your ability, when you got there, how long were you there, some of the things that you found, and, and just the, the day, the surreal day that unfolded before you? Sure. Um, you know, before I got there, I, I donated a pint of blood uh, because I'm O negative, um, so I felt obligated to uh, to do that. And I got there probably in the afternoon uh, and started out. Um, you know, they gave me uh, those orange parking cones. Uh, so initially, I was going around just just marking body parts with uh, with the parking cones. Um, then later on, I helped with, uh, you know, stretching hose lines and basically whatever they told me to do because I didn't really know what I was doing, you know, and, and like everybody else, I was in shock. Um, so I did that for a few hours, uh, and then my nose started to bleed uh, pretty bad. Um, you know, that air was so thick, you know, you could cut it with a knife. And uh, my nose bled probably for about three or four hours. I passed out on the wheel of a bulldozer. Then I got up probably in the middle of the night, did some more work until, uh, until a chief told me to go home. You got there and you were, you were quoted in a recent piece as saying that you knew when you arrived that your health was complete. I mean, I, I'm assuming you were fearful for your life when you got there. I don't know, maybe you weren't at that particular point by the time you got there, whether you were fear- well, absolutely. fearful. Absolutely. Okay. On that bus ride in that I described, uh, a priest came on the bus and read us our last rites. Um, so we didn't know what we were going into. We didn't know if we were under attack, if there was right. missiles coming. We had no idea. You know, and when we were there, they had these, uh, these big, big whistles that would go off. And they said, every time you hear this whistle, you need to run into the tunnel because we don't, there's another attack coming. So, so yeah, we, you know, we were, that was certainly on the forefront of our minds. But like you said, me personally, I remember I, I sat down to take a break and uh, a McDonald's worker came over and, and, and gave me some food. And, uh, and I just, I remember thinking to myself that, you know, this isn't going to end well for a lot of people, you know, because in the academy they teach you the dangers of breathing in concrete dust and pulverized glass, asbestos and all that. And, and there I was on my first day breathing in that and 160 other toxins that can kill you, you know. And so, I mean, it, was, it was pretty clear. And so the nosebleed was as a result of what you were breathing in, obviously. I would assume, yeah. And, you know, I, I was down a pint of blood to begin with. So, uh, you know, it was pretty hard to get under control tell us but yeah it had to be tell us about your health rob rob sarah is the voice a hero in our midst uh talking about being 21 years old having not even started his job as a new york city firefighter and seeing the towers on fire and going to help tell us about now that's you know it's 18 years ago already i can't even believe that um, how has your health been? And tell us about some of your, your colleagues and share with us the aftermath that, you know, a lot of us can't even comprehend the numbers of illnesses and deaths as a result of just the, the conditions under which you had to work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty staggering. You know, me, me personally, I mean, I have several illnesses. Um, I have sin- I had sinus polyps removed. I have uh, GERD. PTSD, sleep apnea, thyroid nodules, uh, peripheral neuropathy, and some other neurological issues. But uh, so I, I consider myself fortunate because as of yet I haven't gotten the big diagnosis. But over 10,000 people have already been diagnosed with a 9/11 cancer. Um, we have 96,000 people in the health program. Over 40,000 are being treated for one of those illnesses that I described. The FDMI uh, continues to to 
take a big hit from 9-11. You know, we have over 2,100 members right now battling a 9-11 cancer. Um, we've already lost 195 to a 9-11 illness, uh, and it's not stopping anytime soon. You know, uh, the experts are predicting the cancer rates to go probably 20 to 50,000 people in the next two to five years once the asbestos-related diseases uh, manifest. You know, there's a latency period on a lot of these things, and uh, we haven't even hit it yet. So that's, that, that's a big concern. But, yeah, I've lost a lot of friends. You know, and and, and it, it's happening quickly. You know, guys are getting diagnosed with cancer and dying within a couple months. You know, I had a friend, he ran the New York City Marathon in, in November, and he died in, in March from lung cancer. That's how quickly it's, it's taken us out. So, How, Rob, again, I ask this very delicately, how do you go on? And then I want to talk to you about the fun that was created and the problems that we have and whatever we can do as just fans of yours and fans of everybody that helped um we're willing to do it we're all the way out here in seattle but we feel very close to the scene obviously as everybody does what is it like well you have people in washington state in the program you know there's people in all 50 states so this isn't just about us it's not just about first responders so you know it really truly is a national issue yeah and that was what john said over and over again in his speech in his speech the other day what's it like tell our listeners what's it like to be living with these problems but worried that the next time you go to the doctor the next time you're tested the next time you do a blood test what's it like having to worry day to day to day feeling like it's just the inevitable that at some point what you're 30 what 39 years old now uh, yep yep 39. What, what's it like to have to live with that cloud over you knowing that it's just in your mind a matter of time until you're diagnosed with something even more serious than what you already have uh, it's scary. You know, I, I have three kids under 10. Um, I lost a parent at a young age, and I, I know what it's like. And, you know, I, that's really what, what's on my mind. Um, you know, I, I feel like the sand is moving a little quicker through the, through the hourglass, like most of us do, you know, because it's happening to our friends. So, yeah, it's, it's scary. You know, I try not to think about it, but it's hard not to, you know, every time I look at one of my kids, you know, it, it, it hits me. You know, yesterday my son graduated kindergarten, and the whole time I sat there crying, wondering if this is the last graduation I'm going to see, you know? Wow. I'm so sorry for that. I'm so sorry that you feel that way. Take us through a little bit the history of this bill. So the, the as I understand it, the Victim Compensation Fund, or the VCF, was originally set up, originally, for the victims of 9-11, and then it was expanded to include the families and those that are suffering from illnesses from that day. And it was just funded, but we just had no idea. We, we underestimated, whoever it was that put the, the numbers together, underestimated how many sicknesses and how, how big the fallout of this was going to be. And now we're down. It was supposed to last until 2020. The money, the billions of dollars was supposed to last to 2020. But so many illnesses, so many deaths as a result of those conditions on 9-11 were out of money. So we're pushing to establish a bill that would continue to fund it forever and ever and ever. Is that right? Do I have that right, Rob? Essentially, yeah. And, and the initial bill was set up in, in 2010. They gave us five years to prove that it was medically necessary and to prove uh, you know, the link to 9-11 and that there was going to be no fraud. 
and we proved all of that. So then in 2015, they extended the health care portion of the bill 75 years, which essentially makes it permanent, you know, because okay. Okay. we're not going to live to right. be 100 and something years old. So okay. we got 75 years on the health care, but they only gave us five years on the compensation. I mean, we knew back then that five years wasn't going to be long enough because we knew the, the latency periods of, like I said, of asbestos and, and, and diseases like that. So we knew this fight was coming. We knew the money wasn't going to be enough, but that's all they would give us at the time. So, we, you know, we've been preparing for this for the last three years because we, we knew it was coming. We saw the cancer rates rising. Unfortunately, we, we have to go back and, and, and beg for more money because they didn't give us enough the first time. Um, that's the frustrating part is is all the experts told them it was going to take at least 20 years for, for a lot of these cancers to kick in, but yet the bill expires a year before that, you know? So what's the hang-up? Where is the hang-up? What portion of Congress is Well, we just got the through the House. Yep. We, 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 uh, you know, we came out of committee, and we're going to the floor for a vote in the next week or two, but we have, uh, at last check, 314 co-sponsors, so it passed. So now it's on to the Senate, so the hang-up is going to be the same thing it was the last time, you know, uh, the last time um, the Senate leaders held it hostage, you know, they, they wanted to get what they wanted out of the bill, unfortunately, is, is what happens in politics, right? These bills always get attached to something else. And we were, we were set to be in a transportation bill and it got pulled because Republican leadership wanted to sell some more oil. Um, so we're hoping that something like that doesn't happen again this time, but you never know, you know, hopefully John Stewart made an impact and hopefully the cameras and the lights will keep shining on this so so we don't have to go through something like that again so we don't have to you know have people tell us our lives are only worth uh you know a few barrels of oil you know so hopefully uh the 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 republican members of our senate will step up and do the right thing you were sitting right behind john stewart when he delivered that message to the house judiciary committee right I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was with him uh, in the room before that, and he had a speech prepared, uh, and we were just, you know, talking, and he was really nervous, you know, and and I asked him, I said, "What are you so nervous about? You're John Stewart, you, you know, you've done so much in your life," and his response was, "You know, I don't want to f this up for you guys," you know, and you could tell he meant it. So when he went in that room and he saw all those empty chairs, I saw him. He just pushed his speech ahead in front of him and just spoke from his heart and. Uh, I'm real thankful he did because he, he hit all the bright notes, you know. He said everything that needed to be said. And I think those empty chairs are what hit a lot of us, including myself, the hardest. The fact that so many chose not to be there. Mm-hmm. Do you sense, you sense they were scared to be there? Maybe. Uh, you know, John has a reputation of being a bit of a loose cannon. But, but we've noticed, you know, I've been going down to Washington for five years now. I've taken hundreds of meetings and... It, it didn't surprise me, you know. You know how many times we've we've had meetings, explained why we're there, who we are, uh, you know, and then hear the back door slam as as, as the congressman sneaks out the back door, you know. Mm-hmm. So we weren't surprised. It, it's 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 pretty typical, but uh, you know, I'm I'm glad John called him out on it, you know. Well, all I have to say is, and I speak on behalf of the relative few that listen to this podcast, but I'm sure the nation feels the same way, or at least a good portion of the nation feels the same way. First of all, thank you. Thank you for what you did, and thank you for what you do, and thank you to all the people in our audience that might do something similar to the way, the way you acted on 9-11. That's first of all. And second of all, this is not a New York issue. And... 
that's downright offensive for people to make this about New York. There was nothing about 9-11 that was solely about New York. This was about all of us. And as I said, we sit here in Seattle, what, 3,000 miles away, but we feel like we're your neighbor and your, your supporter in all this. I wish you, Rob, and your family, your young family, all the very best. Uh, we will all pray for your health and all of your colleagues' health as we go day to day. I hope that you can live a, a normal and fun and exciting life. And just know that we have your back and we love you very much and we'll be pulling for you. We hope that this bill is passed and that this compensation fund is uh, funded forever and ever because you guys deserve it. Thank you so much for being on our on our podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for telling our stories. Talk about a real life hero. My chat with Rob Sarah on episode 44 of Mitch Unfiltered, a New York City firefighter who rushed to those World Trade Centers on September the 11th, 2001. So have you done it? Have you made any effort to reduce your monthly mortgage? A seven-minute call to Jordan Flowers' team at the Kirkland office at Guild Mortgage is all you need, just like Steve Dion, our executive producer. Yeah, I gave uh, Jordan a buzz in uh, late July. Um, was interested to get a uh, quote on a refi, um, just the way the market has been with, with interest rates dropping as they have. Kind of tailored a, a mortgage around my preferences one of the main parts that was appealing was the fact that he was able to cut out my mortgage insurance. Uh, he bought that out completely, um, really consolidated the loan into one clean monthly payment, amortized over a shorter time horizon and at a lower rate. Really easy process. You know, I'm working with Jordan and Christina there. Not not bad for a coog, you know. I <laughs> I was uh, hesitant to put my uh, put my dollars and cents into uh, the hands of a, a wazoo grad, but. You know, it all turned out t- turned out well th- thus far. From beginning to end, Steve, how long did it take? It took about a month total. How long was the first phone conversation until you determined what you could save per month? It's about a 15-minute call. When you include the mortgage insurance, how much less are you paying per month now on a percentage basis thanks to the refi with the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage? I'm paying about 8 to 10% less a month. On top of that, uh, we'll be paying for five less years. So it's kind of a win-win on both both sides. So my line on the podcast that you're crazy not to call the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage with the low interest rates at the moment just to find out what you could be saving in a refinance is on point. Well, it, it's valid unless you want to spend more money every month. <laughs> <I> mean... <laughs> oh, and Mitch, one last thing. Where's my Tumblr? (laughs) There it is. Stop standing on the sidelines. Guild Mortgage and the Kirkland office at 425-250-3150. You could start saving big time today. Unfiltered. So interview number three, Hot Shots got on episode 80 and our fabulous four were kind of picking and choosing four of our favorite interviews from the first 400 that have been done on Mitch Unfiltered over the last 16 months. Yeah. Rob Sarah, 9-11 responder, New York City firefighter. You want a true hero? There you go. All right, there you go. There you go. Right in your midst, Rob Sarah. I'll never forget him saying, well, I didn't mean to say that, but I the, the part that he said, 
you know, they always say never forget, never forget 9-11, but it sort of felt like they were forgetting us. That part kind of hit me when he said that, you know, it's, he's right. Never forget. Well, we're sort of forgetting the people that jumped sort in. Of. Yeah, right. What's amazing about it, the more you think about it is, and I know I said this probably on that particular episode 44, we need people. I, I'm not brave enough to have no. gone into that into that situation. No, I'm not either. I, I didn't go to the military. I'm not a cop. I'm not no, a firefighter. No, no. We, a- we ask right. of young people to, to run in and risk their lives and to try to save lives. And they do. And then when it's all said and done and kind of the dust settles, we kind of forget, don't we? I mean, we don't truly forget, but we kind of turn our back. I mean, that's what that segment's all about. We've kind of turned our back on the families that have not only lost relatives in that disaster, but of the families like Rob Sarah, who continues to live with all these scars, both physically and emotionally, we kind of have turned our back on those people, which is the, it's, it's inhuman yes. on some level. It's inhuman. How can we ask, how can we ask people to, to risk their lives and go defend us if we're not going to take care of them in the aftermath? That's, That's right. my question. I saw recently that Representative Max Rose invited Rob Sarah to President Donald Trump's latest State of the Union. And, Sarah, and it says here in the article that he helped rally first responders to fully fund and permanently authorize the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. Trump signed the VCF into law over the summer, which fully finances and reauthorizes a federal compensation fund through 2092. So Rob's work was not in vain, right? Right. It's great. That's yeah, great to hear. Through a, 2092. That's a, that's a nice, these that's a nice yeah, uh, you can say that again. That's yeah. a nice PS to the story. And then the final interview that we'll do on our fabulous four episode number 80 is a, is a golfer. I don't want to say former golfer because he still tries to play, believe it or not. With one leg, he tries to play. Yeah. The name is Ken Green, and this is not a golfing story. You're right. I, I worry about people flicking this episode off because they hear golf and they're not interested in golf well this has nothing to do with golf they should hear it from me because i'm not a golfer i'm not really interested this is fascinating this guy's life is fascinating just when you think that you've had it bad i mean i guess all of these guys outside of bracken sarah (laughs) Stephen, (laughs) Stephen elliott i didn't know what bracken's going through (laughs) he stubbed his toe a little while ago for all you know Stephen elliott rob (laughs) sarah and now and now kenny green um when you think you've got it bad Listen to a story. It goes back to that old expression that my dad used to use, and I'm sure somebody else used that he stole it from. If we all sat in a circle and we threw our problems into the middle, you'd look around and you'd race to get your own problems back. That's right. When you hear this story of Ken Green, you may not even believe that so much bad luck and so much terrible things, so many terrible things could happen to one person. Here's my interview. I don't remember if it was episode 52. I in the 50s or in the 40s. My my interview with former PGA Tour star Ken Green. Unfiltered. Likely unfamiliar to most of you, but some, like me, will remember the undeniably likable Kenny Green. I hope I can still call you Kenny. You're not, you're not Ken. You're still Kenny Green, right, Ken? Yeah, you can call me whatever you want. I'm good with it. <laughs> 
a five-time PGA Tour winner. For my money, he should have won probably double the amount. Uh, a Ryder Cup player, uh, an international star, also the author of a book called Hunter of Hope, which we're going to talk about, who... Uh, Ken, I would say in your prime, you were funny and miserable. You were unfiltered and sad. You were refreshing and depressed. Are those adjectives all fair? Is there anything that I'm missing for, from the early, the early 1980s, the mid-1980s, Ken Green? Charming, good looking. <laughs> green shoes, green gloves. Yeah, green shoes, green gloves. No, I mean, that's, that, you know, that's, that's certainly a part of me. I mean, I was... Uh, you know, I don't. I hate the the phrase. You know, a man ahead of his time. You know, but you know, I I I believed in answering questions with the truth and not playing the PR game. And and, and you know, to me, it's like, well, if you ask a question, don't you want to hear my answer, or do you want to hear the answer you want to hear? Yeah. And if that's the case, then ask yourself the damn question. Right. So, how, how do you think that worked for you then and now? Trying to get back into it, and there's a there's a lifetime of stories for our listeners that we're going to get to, but I know you're you're running kind of into the establishment now. You always did, but your game kind of got you out of that. How do you feel like that's still impacting you today, those those answers that you gave? Well, amazingly enough, in, in some arenas, it, it still seems to be hurting you. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Golf Channel had me all set up to do some interviews, and they just pulled the trigger at the last minute with no reason and, and it's like all right what what did i do now i mean that's <laughs> just like but it's you know that's that's the world we live in and and i i refuse to fall into that world i'm gonna stay in in the world that i believe is is better and that's nothing but you know being honest and open your life is a story filled with excitement success as i said international prominence bad luck poor choices unfair tragedies beyond anyone's imagination and now kind of an amazing will to live and overcome help us remember ken green getting into golf getting into the pga tour tell everybody the story of how you were able to in some ways finance through a little gambling a little gambling what on the nba to get yourself on the pga tour after i was on tour for three years and you know i was i was you know obviously my first three years and you know, and back then, you know, when it was the equipment and it was harder to play golf, you you had to kind of evolve time after time, year after year, um, you know, versus today where you can be so much better younger. Mm-hmm. And I'd lost my sponsors. So I had, I had retained my card, but I had no money to go out and play. And so all winter I kept looking for people and looking for people and couldn't find any. And then I'm like you know, January's here and the tour is opening up. And so I had no choice but to, you know, start uh, putting some, uh, what little cash I had on some NBA basketball games, of which I know absolutely nothing about. (laughs) Yeah. And I managed to pick off 23 out of 24 games. Oh, my God. How? That got me started. (laughs) It's just pure... You could call it a little help from the other side or pure luck. Cause, I mean, how does that happen? How much money did you I mean, did you raise? I ended up with about a little over 15000 Yeah. And that was you good enough. I, mean, I, I literally good started enough. out betting $100 and yeah. just kept, you know, I just had to keep raising it and raising it and raising it. And, and it's, uh, you know, that got me through the year. And, and then I won my first tournament in the summer. And that first tournament was where? 
that championship? That was in Flint, Michigan, just uh, the Buick Open, just yeah. a tad north of uh, Detroit. Warwick Hills, right? Yes, Warwick Hills, correct. Money games and practice rounds. You were legendary for that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, there's one thing that seems to be synonymous with golfers. And, and gambling and golf seem to mix. And why it is, I don't know, but I'm not one of these guys that can just go out and play 18 holes for nothing. It's like, don't we got to have something on it? So, you know, there was a group of us, you know, the, the Calcs of the world, Payne Stewart, you know, couple Zinger, Blaine McAllister, you know, and, and we would go out and, you know, we're $100 autos, you know, we'd have air presses. So was, and you know before the ball landed, the guy had to decide whether he was going to accept it or not. Yeah. Uh, and and that's a really fun game if anybody's interested in it. As soon as you hit your tee shot, if I don't think it's going to end up in a good place, might not be the end of the world, but maybe not great. I say press. So you have the option of either taking it uh-huh. or you don't. And if you don't take it, then you lose. You know, unless the ball's going in the water, you pretty much have to take it, and then you just got to hope you. You work your way around the the, uh, the hole. What was the but it, what uh, was the biggest game you remember? You ever remember one standing out, one big game, four standing there's two, out? Two games that I remember the most: Kapalua, and this is Hawaii, you know, where they play the Tournament of Champions now. So we got up at at six thirty, and we go out and play a, a quick twenty-seven holes, and we're done by nine thirty. And it was Calc and I against Bean and Crenshaw and Bean and Mike Hulbert. And Bean just made everything. No good son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous what he made. And uh, three hours later, I had to write him a check for $3,000. Oh, boy. And it was, uh, it, it hurt. I didn't like it. Okay. But but I did get him back on, on the tennis court because we started talking <laughs> about tennis. And he, of course, thought he was a good tennis player. Come on, Bean couldn't, and, Andy Bean couldn't move yeah, on the tennis. All he had to yeah. do was move from side to side, well, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if you were paying attention to, to uh, Wimbledon. Where, uh, I was, yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, the Australian who played Nadal, Krygos or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I know who and you're talking about. Yeah. he hit him right in the chest. And, you know, they were giving him a hard time for that. Well, that's what we play in tennis. We call them skins. You know, we're, we're trying to hit the other guy. It's an automatic win. And I got Bean right in the pelotas. Oh, boy. And it, it, was, it was comical watching him grasp and then fall. So I, I at least got some of my money back. And then... Um, what was, the other, what uh, was the other bet that you remembered? You said there another were Another bet that yeah. uh, it was Calc and I against... Uh, McAllister and Azinger at uh, Tournament Players Club in Jacksonville. Calc and I play the last seven holes nine under par. <laughs> and we lost $2,500. No, you did not. Blaine McAllister hold out his second shot for the whole the whole enchilada because, you know, we were playing the one-down autos and, the, you know, the presses, and boom, $2,500. Did McAllister putt right-handed or left-handed, Kenny? At that at that point, he was going left-handed. Oh boy, incredible stories from the great Ken Green. We're going to get to the the not so happy stories in a few moments. How many times were you fined by the PGA Tour, Ken? Uh, I've had thirty fines. Thirty fines for what? What they fine you for? You know, 
Some of them are justified. I, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and lie. And, and there's some of them I absolutely deserved. Some were the, the, the craziest fine ever. Mm-hmm. All right. 92 PGA. We're at Bell Reeve in St. Louis. Again, it's, it's myself, Calc, Payne Stewart, and Couples. And we're waiting on a hole. Now, the three of them are up on a tee, you know, and it's pretty crowded, and everybody's, you know, hanging around. So I walk down the edge of the tee and start signing autographs. And all of a sudden, someone says, hey, what do you think of the course? And, I, you know, I just kind of look at him and go, you a member? And he goes, no. And I said, the course sucks. <laughs> and, you know, everybody laughed, but an, an official heard me. Uh-huh. So he reports it. So I get fined because I got fined for breathing. You know, and this was a Tuesday. How do you get fined on a Tuesday? And I'm the one signing autographs. But I was involved in uh, the Ping lawsuit. Yep. And yep. Uh, Dean Beeman and Tim Fincham, they, they nailed me every time they could. Wow. How, many, they just, how much were these fines? Uh, they would range anywhere from uh, 500 to 5,000. Wow. They would never, they would never re- fine you more than 5,000 because if they fine you more than five, you can take it to the next level. So, if, in other words, if it's in between the 500 to the five, I can appeal it, but you're appealing to them. Right. So basically you're not appealing it. Yeah. So, you know, they, you know, they know what they're doing. They never, they never whack you more because they don't want you to go to the, you know, the next level, which would be the, the board. This is the voice of Ken Green who won five times on the PGA tour. I said in the opening that you probably should have won 10 or 12 times. I remember you competing on a couple of times, a couple of chances to win the masters, right? Mm-hmm. Including 1989 where you were in contention and you had a little falling out with the chairman of Augusta National at that time. Yeah, that was, uh, Horde Harden was, uh, he was the one that followed uh, Clifford Roberts. And they were from what we call the old school, you know, the hard nose and and all that. So what happens is they give you family passes. So I had eight family passes and they let you buy eight because we had a whole group coming, obviously 16. And for whatever reason, my wife and I had some sort of fight. And she was supposed to bring up the eight family passes that they mailed to you. And she just decided that she wasn't going to send them at all. And, you know, and we kept trying to get her and her family was coming and they couldn't get her to to do it. So finally I said, you know, I'm going to go talk to Horde. I mean, he's married. He understands that we married men and women have fights and, you know, they can act like idiots, whether it's the man or the woman. And I, I, you know, I'm like, he'll understand. I'm going to just tell him the absolute truth. So I go in there and I rip out the whole story and, and all that. And then the next words out of, out of his mouth were, no, get better control of your wife. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. So then we ended up having to sneak everybody in. And that's another story in itself. Tell him how you did. I know how you did. Tell him how you snuck everybody yeah, in. It, it's uh well, what, what I decided to do was I, you know, I, I bring people in through the car and then we go back out. The first day was an absolute success. And then one of, one of our guys gets caught. Now, what we did was the eight youngest didn't have a badge because I figured they were going to be the, the uh, fleet of foot, so to speak. Well, one of them gets caught and it happens to be her brother. Oh. Well, he panics under the pressure. <laughs> And he rats me out. Instead of just saying no, I snuck on, no, he rats me out. Oh. So now the next day, they start they stop my car and, and start looking at everybody's passes and badges and stuff. So now 
when I went back out to get the other guys, we had to we had to improvise. So you know, we put some people on the floor and put blankets over them. We had other people with the golf clubs in the back of the in the trunk, <laughs> and uh, and we just kind of snuck through. They even stopped Kalkskar because they 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 knew we were buddies and they thought he might be sneaking. How do you in. how do you win a freaking? Masters with all this other stuff going on, Ken. Uh, you know, you know, I, I, I've never been one of those that, you know, once you get like inside the ropes, that's where you are. Yeah. And really, you kind of just forget about that other stuff. I, I can't. I mean, I'd love to be able to use an excuse. You know, I, I know. You know, as my depression came in and the divorce and all that, it did become an issue. But uh, prior to that, you know, I. I was ready to play. You know, once 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 you get to that first tee, you, yeah. you know, you, you you got one thought on your head. And ultra talented you were, Ken Green. While you were prospering and playing well, you weren't happy on the inside, right? It's 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 now well chronicled that you were trying to you were trying to black out. You were trying to to box out, for lack of a better term, uh, things that had happened in your youth, including a really difficult time when you were 11 and your mom moved your family away. Right. Um, my my father was a really bad alcoholic, and it was at the point of, of divorce or try to do something. So she thought that uh, that we would move to Honduras, which, of course, at 11 years old, I didn't even know was a country, much less where it was. And thinking that, well, if we go to a foreign country, there won't be as many people, maybe less drinkers, maybe my father can get his, you know, get his act together. And just like anything else in life, if you're a drinker, you'll find drinkers. And if you do drugs, you'll find people that do drugs. Or if you like golf, you'll find golfers. So it didn't really work out well in that respect. Uh, a really good friend of the family moved on with us, who uh, later would be the one that started the sexual abuse. And, and then it multiplied into some other people, and, and then it got into sexual and physical and then you know got into nasty stuff and uh and then one night it just it all i interrupted and and uh i i did something that i'm not necessarily proud of but i'm not ashamed of uh and then i was put on a plane immediately when i had to wake up my father from his drunken stupor uh and but you know i i can honestly say that at least I thought I did. Now, since I've opened this door up again, I'm understanding where I didn't get a handle on it. Uh, I, I thought I had blocked it well, you know, and just kept blocking it. But what I didn't realize is, even though I may have blocked what happened, I didn't take into account what it was doing to me in terms of, you know, the mental yeah. uh, aspect of how you think in life and how, how you are with other relationships and and, you know, the, the things that are, you know, important in life that you need. And, uh, you know, that's where I, that's where really I got destroyed. You know, I went down there as a young little boy and, you know, I, I turned, I came back as a, a basically a, a recluse introvert yeah. and that wanted nothing to do with people. Uh, that's why I ended up playing golf is because golf was, golf saved me. You know, it, I honestly believe that if, if, I didn't go to golf. I probably would have ended up being a teenager with, you know, drug problems and, you know, maybe even some criminal issues or, you know, I would have, I would have acted out over what happened in, in, in Honduras because, uh, 
one of the reasons when I decided to, to write the book, um, I made sure I went, I, I wanted to explain to people that, that it isn't just touchy-feely. I think sometimes people don't, because it's such a grotesque topic, nobody really wants to talk about it. And, and, you know, and, or they think, well, it's just a little this or a little that. So, you know, I actually go in into the, the games is what they would call them. Uh, and so people can get an understanding of, of that this isn't all how it is. And you're, I mean, like I said, Ken, Ken Green that I was supposed to be is gone. I'm, I am who I am now, you know, for good or bad because it, of them. It was taken from you. Right. And it, um, I, I, you know, I just think that, again, some of the states, some of the laws, you know, that everybody's into rehab and, you know, let's give them another chance, give them another chance. Well, we who have been abused are we're done for the whole, for the rest of our lives. Yeah. We have to cope, and we do what best we can. Some some get through it, yeah. some don't. Some go on to become abusers themselves. That's how messed up you get. Uh-huh. I mean, the idea that that you're abused and then you end up doing it, knowing you shouldn't do it. But that's how how hard it is to get around this sometimes. And you thought the voice is Ken Green. You thought the best way. So many of us think the same thing, and. I've talked to you a little bit off the air about my darkness, and so many of us believe that when we're in that place, the best thing we can do is to try to ignore it and block it out when maybe talking about it, finding somebody to talk to. If you had to do it all over again, Ken, you might have searched somebody out when you came back to try to help you put your arms around what had happened to you. Yes? Oh, absolutely. I I you know, I, I'll I'll never forget the words my father said to me when he put me on the on the plane. And he goes, "Kid," because he called me "kid." Kid, I'm sorry. You did nothing wrong, and don't ever tell a living soul. You know, so. You know. I was like, "All right," and and that's the worst thing I I I should have could have ever done. You have to you have to get this out. I don't care who you talk to, uh, but you've got to talk to somebody, and and it's uh, because you have no idea the impact it's going to have on you, in terms of relations, in terms of relationships, in terms of of you know the workforce, and being getting you know with people, and and it's uh, but you know when you're you know at this point I'm 13, uh, I don't know anything about that. You don't think like that. You're just kind of doing as I'm told. You know, I mean. And you know, I knew it was it was, you know, awful stuff. And uh, I, I don't. I mean, it never even crossed my mind. I, I yeah. you know, I just said okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I literally didn't. I I never told the soul until about five years ago. The name of the book is called Hunter of Hope. Now move forward. I wish I I wish I could say that it stopped there for Ken Green, but. The unfortunate twists and turns of life just kept on rearing their ugly heads with our guest. 1990s, rough decade. Injuries hurt your golf game. I know you went through a very public and difficult divorce and custody battles. And I'm sure you're going to tell us that everything that was happening that you were holding back and that you were you were blocking out, um, you know, played a small part in some bad decisions and just a, a really 
horrible time uh, in the 90s. Talk about that relationship with your wife and the divorce and what might you do over again if you had a if you had a redo. Right. Well, I mean, you know, my biggest mistake was I I had enough signs that that we were not going to work. She she had some other side, so to speak. And we we weren't going to work no matter the and this this is where Honduras killed me because I didn't have anything to do with relationships or girls in high school or anything. And so she came along and, you know, oh, wow, it's, you know, brand love and in love and all that. Uh, but I had signs, you know, that, that we, it just wasn't going to work. And then, you know, we go through five years of, of marriage and finally has to end. And, uh, you know, she started turning the kids on me. Uh, she and I had uh, one son biologically. His name was Hunter, hence Hunter of Hope. Uh, and I helped raise her two uh, kids from another marriage. And then she she wouldn't allow me to see Brad or Brooke, so I lost them immediately. And she turned Hunter. And for the next seven years, we were in court fighting over visitation and denials and denials and denials yeah and let's go back um, let's go back to something that you said earlier which was i was able this is you talking i'm paraphrasing i was able when i was between the ropes i could block everything else out and play golf well at some point right that stuff happened no, this, this, this was too this much i couldn't block out this was too much right ken right well i mean you know because uh you know I, I went through the money that that i had accumulated you know in the divorce she gets half i get half and you know, then five years later, you're not making any money. So, you know, I'm basically broke, and she has arrest warrants on me as soon as I miss anything. Uh, so I, I I would panic all the time. If you look at my record each year, it gets worse from about 92 down. Yeah. And it's all based on, on fighting in the court. And it, uh, it leads to, you know, me falling into a, a massive depression and, and, uh, and not understanding that I was in a depression. You know, that's the hardest thing about people that are depressed. Yeah. It doesn't even dawn on you that you're depressed. You know, you could just be, you're, you know, fighting through life. You know, life can be hard. You'll get through it. You'll get through it. And you don't realize that you're no longer making sound decisions that you might normally make. It doesn't mean your problems are going to go away, but how you react to them. So now I'm a depressed soul who has now lost Hunter because I, I had to basically let him go because he was he was just getting too screwed up and you know and then eventually you know you know i i go for the suicide and i honestly thought that you know everyone would be better off without me when was this Ken? and uh suicide was in 99 and it's uh and this is this is a story well it's obviously all in the book but this is a story that if if people don't believe in in you know, the big guy or the other side, if this doesn't help you, I'd be stunned. Um, I had taken, you know, because I had, as you said, I had some shoulder and back problems. So I just had a whole bottle of pain pills, sleeping pills, you know, brand new and just chugged them all. So, you know, I'm in the bed lying down and ready to go. But now the, the rest of the story is, is what I was told by Sue, who, who was my girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was sleeping on the couch because I was being an idiot. And she said the dog, our Coco, our lab, kept hitting her with her face, just kept nosing her, nosing her, trying to wake her up. 
and she would just keep pushing the dog away. And she did this numerous times, and she just kept pushing him. Well, the dog finally decides to put his mouth around her arm up by her shoulder and literally dragged her off the couch. So Sue jumps up going after the dog, wondering what the hell's the matter with this dog? Why would she do that? And she she runs in after uh, the dog into the bedroom. Now, the dog jumps on me. And as soon as she came in and saw the dog was on me, she knew something was wrong. And, you know, she, she immediately, you know, got me, you know, 911. And I woke up 48 hours later. That's how many pills I still had in me. And it, and I, we would not be having this conversation if it wasn't for that dog. Wow. And you can't tell me somebody didn't get to that dog. Yeah. Ken, before we get to the next piece of heartbreaking news in your life, Ken Green is our guest. Let's add, let's add a little bit of comic relief. Did you have an encounter with an alligator in your backyard? Uh, I, I had a friendly encounter with him, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I had just gotten back. Uh, from playing golf, and my German Shepherd Nip, yeah, uh, loves playing with the ball. So we're out in the backyard, and I'm I'm throwing the racquetball to her, and so she's out about 30 yards, and I throw up a high fastball, and she jumps up in the air to get it, catches the canine tooth, and goes flying over the fence into the canal. So I'm like, ah, oh, Christ. So I'm thinking, all right, she's due for a bath. You know, the canal's dirty. That's all I'm worried about is it's yeah. dirty water. Right. So I'm like, all right, she's, I'll give her a bath. So, you know, I snap my fingers. So she runs back to me, runs, jumps over the fence, and then keeps running and makes this big splash in the water. One second later, there's another splash. And I'm like, now I'm about 40 yards from the edge, and I hear this splash. That's how loud the splash was. And I'm like, oh, please, don't tell me that's what I think it is. So obviously I go running out, and I get to the edge of the, of the canal, and Nip is swimming back at me with a ball in her mouth, happy as a lark. And you can see this gator is angling her and it's going to cut her off. And I, I literally thought about seeing if I could run and, and jump on the gator because it was some, you know, somewhat close to the, to the edge that I wasn't sure if I could reach or I couldn't reach or, you know, I'm just trying to come up with something fast. Um, I didn't do that. I, I can't tell you why. And I'm, guess I was hoping she'd miss or something. I don't know. Well, the gator gets there and they meet and boom, the gator gets the dog. So now I jump in. Now I'm neck high in the water. Now I'm expecting movement. You know, you know, you watch the the shows and the gator's always moving and, yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the prey's always moving to try to get it loose and, and there's nothing. And I'm, I'm literally cussing myself out. Uh, about a minute goes by and all of a sudden about 15, 20 feet from me, the gator's tail pops up, up, and the back pops up. Uh, still, the mouth is down in the water because she's, she's got a hold of Nip and drowning her. So I, I waddle my way over there because I'm still neck high, and I get literally within uh, uh, inches of the gator, and I'm trying to figure out what to do because this thing is, whoa, this thing is big. You know, I, I couldn't get my stomach, uh, my hands around his stomach because it was too big. What I remember the most is how big his back right paw was claw, whatever you want to call those things. And I'm like, all right, I, there's only one thing I can do. I, I grabbed around his tail and punched his stomach underneath oh at the same God. time. Oh now, all I, all I remember now is I see this gator's mouth open up and it's coming towards me. Now, I know it's not going to get me because it doesn't have that agility, but it's coming. 
and he, you know, he comes flying in, hits the water, and now the gator does the roll. So we go rolling around. I don't know if I held on for two times or ten. It was it was quite a bit based on all the, the cuts and the, the the bruised ribs I had. Uh, I somehow get my bearing, you know, because now I, you know, I'm wondering what the hell's going on, and I, I pop up out of the water and I look around, and here the gator's looking at me, trying to figure out what the hell I am, because he's probably never encountered something like this. And he's about 15 feet just looking at me, not moving. And, I, and Nip's trying to get to the edge of the water, so I swim over to Nip, and we go out. Uh, she ends up with about 25 stitches, almost died from all the water. And uh, four days later, she's ready to play ball, and people, people are calling me, you know, congratulating me or calling me an idiot or, or what am I thinking and and how's the dog doing? How's Nip doing? Is Nip doing good? Is Nip okay? Nobody asked how I was. I couldn't play golf for seven weeks with all my ribs. <laughs> but it was, uh, we, we were, everything went our way. Yeah. It, it just, I, you know, I tell people if the gator had just slid in, by the time I wondered where Nip was, she'd have been gone. If the gator didn't get Nip Literally right at the at the front front two paws and the back two paws, yeah. literally got the whole chest. If if the gator just got like the any part of the feet, she would have ripped them open. And then the third, if the gator came back at me, I I would have been dead because I would have never been able to fight this guy off. I mean everything again. Whether you want to believe in the big guy or somebody helping you, uh, you know it was uh, it, it, we weren't we, we, we you know we weren't meant to go that day. And unfortunately, Nip, uh, Nip, Nip died in the RV accident. Which is where I'm going next. And I just ask you with uh, as much respect as possible, very delicately, if you wouldn't mind talking about that June, as if enough hadn't happened in your life to you. Uh, June 2009, Ken. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I just turned 50 and I was starting to play the senior tour and things were really turning around. I was starting to to relax and starting to make money again. And, um, you know, I was really looking forward to, uh, you know, what was going to, you know, the next 10 years, basically. We, uh, my wife and my brother and, and Nip, uh, were traveling in a uh, RV. We were coming back from, uh, Austin, Texas. Wife or girlfriend? Uh, well, depends on who you ask. We, we technically, we got married in the islands, but it, it's not legal in the United States. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, I don't know, okay. you know, okay. I don't know what you call it, but you know, we called it husband wife. We were okay with it. Okay. And, uh, so we're traveling back from Austin to, to Greensboro, North Carolina, where, you know, we, we had a home and, uh, the, the front right tire blows. And now I was sleeping in the back bed and I remember hearing a bang, and that's all I really remember is this bang. And the RV goes carooming off the off the road and down this embankment, and we just crashed into this massive tree. Uh, they were killed instantly. Uh, I evidently got out of the bed and, and ran forward or something because I was thrown out of uh, the window. Part of me went out the left side of the window, and my leg went out the right side of the leg of the window, hence all the damage where we ended up having to cut the leg off. You lost your brother, and, you lost your girlfriend or your wife, you lost your dog nip, uh, but somehow you survived this horrible accident. And 
I, I don't even know how to ask you how you got up each day and tried to fight for your life and the news that you'd have to lose your leg. And I mean, you're a golfer, for goodness sakes. You need your legs to play golf, at least at the highest level. Right. You would think at the highest level. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, how, do you, how, do you get on, how do you get on with your life? How do you, how do you process all that and, and get up and go forward? Yeah, it's, you know, what I, what I would remember telling myself is, uh, you know, obviously it's been a, a, a rough go. There's, you know, I, I, I'd be lying to you if I didn't, you know, didn't say it's been, man, you know, this like time after time after time. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, and again, this whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, you know, you have to decide, are you going to let all these tragedies and losses, you know, ruin you? Or are you going to fight with life? Life is precious. You've got to do everything you can to to win the battle of life. Whatever your battle is, you know, whatever you want in life, you've got to fight for it. And, you know, that was my theory. And, and did, you know, you ever, did you ever I, question whether you wanted to fight anymore? No, no. Never even crossed my mind. And it, it just, again, I can't tell you why. I just, I, I'm not giving up. It's just, you know, it's not in my DNA. And, you know, it, it's almost, it's like a challenge. Yeah, You know, that's how I gave it to myself. You, are you going to be strong enough? Are you going to be firm enough to fight through this? You know, okay, yeah, this has happened, and that's happened, and this has happened, and that's happened. What are you going to decide? What are you going to do? And, you know, my feeling was, all right, I'm going to lose this leg. You know, that's it. We're cutting the leg off, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep going and keep fighting on, and I'm going to try to do something good with this. And, and if, I, if I help one person, then it's a, it's a home run. If I end up helping ten you know, then it's multiple home runs. And if I end up helping more, then, you know, God bless me. That's the way I look at but, it. And it, and it, uh, and, and that's what I keep trying to do. But how about as you're doing that, the emotional loss, the sadness in your heart of in an accident, a blown tire of an RV, losing your, your partner and losing your brother. Well, I mean, it, it, it's hard. I mean, you know, I'm not going to sit there and tell people, I, you know, you don't cry. And, you know, because you do, you have those moments. I have moments to now, and it's been 10 years. You know, you, it, it, the strange thing about, and probably anybody who's lost somebody will tell you this, anything can trigger something. Where, you know, all of a sudden you start thinking about Jeannie, or you think about, you know, your brother, or you think about Billy, or you think about, you know, Hunter, because we haven't even talked about that one yet. And, and you just start crying and it's like, okay, it's okay to cry, you know, let it out, cry. And then, you know, get back off the floor. Were you able to repair at all as he got older, your relationship with Hunter before the horrific news of January, 2010? Yes. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually really good. Um, uh, the, the, the period of absence that I was referring to earlier lasted about four years. And then, um, you know, I mean, I would still talk to him here and there, but, and then finally he wanted to, to start seeing me and at the, he was actually living with me a lot and our relationship was very good at the time of, uh, you know, what, what happened next. And, and, uh, about six months after the accident, um, I get this, I get a message on my phone from my, my pain doctor, uh, who 
ironically, lives next door to Ellen. And Hunter babysat his kids. And on the message, he just said, hey, sorry to hear about Hunter, but I want you to know everything will be all right. You know, hang in there. And so I'm trying to, I'm thinking, what's he talking about? I just talked to Hunter last night, you know. Uh, and so I, I, I couldn't figure it out. So uh, I called him back and I left a message saying, Doc, listen, I'm trying to get a hold of Ellen. She won't answer my phone calls. She won't talk to me. And, and clearly something happened to Hunter and I want to find out what happened. And uh, so he didn't have the heart to tell me because he just, by then he realized that nobody had told me that Hunter had died. And because uh, Ellen had had made the decision that she wasn't going to tell me and that she was just going to take care of it on her own for whatever reason you'd have to ask her. But just vindictiveness, I guess. I don't know. But, um, you know, so I actually call my friend's last lawyer thinking that he'd been in an accident, you know, because, you know, he'd tell me everything would be all right. So, you know, I'm like, hey, how do I contact hospitals to see if, you know, if Hunter's in there? I think something's happened. And, and uh, it was him who told me uh, that Hunter was dead because my pain doctor called him because he knew we were best friends and told, you know, he told Kevin, my friend, that he didn't have the heart to tell me. He wasn't going to be the one to tell me. My son died. Uh, and that's when I found out that, uh, you know, Hunter had passed from uh, alcohol, you know, pills, mixture, OD, whatever you call it. And it uh, that one hurt because, you know, everyone knows you don't expect, you know, to lose, a you know, a 21-year-old, you, you know, your, your, you know, your kids. And, you know, I, was, I remember thinking, you know, all right. You know, again, I never, I never sat there and asked why. You know, what, what I did say was really, you know, like really, you know, I mean, you know, Billy and Jeannie, we were in our 50s. You know, okay, I lose the leg. I'm in my 50s, but 21, you know, your son, you know, it, that one, that one was a tough one. But, you know, then you got to do that. You, it's the same thing. You've got to decide: are you going to let life win? And I'm, I, I'm just. I'm, I'm a firm believer that you got to fight for your for life, you know, and, and you know, you just got to keep going no matter how hard it is. And clearly, you know, we've we've kind of fast tracked to a lot of that what's happened in my life. And it's been it's been insane. It really has. But uh, I, I refuse. You know, now I, 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 I they could be more. And I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to buckle. I'm going to fight for the rest of my life, no matter what. The name of the book, by the way, is Hunter of Hope, the story of Ken Green's life and the title, obviously, in honor and in, in memory of his son. What is what is today look like? What is what is every day look like for for Kenny Green? Tell me about the golf game. Uh, we've seen you in at least I have. I've seen you in certain hand selected events. It sounds like you're able to still play the game at a, at a decent level? Do you play it often? Just tell me what your uh, world, what, what I, does your world look like these days, Ken? I, I love golf. I would play golf every day. Now, one thing that we haven't unfortunately talked about is, is I have a very u- rare and unique problem that, of, in the amputee world is I have some, uh, some bad nerve damage. Okay. So I deal with a lot of pain. Um, for for those in your audience that are quote our age or my age, 
uh, it's the finger in the socket, the electric bolt. Yes. You know, the taser type thing. Yes. That just hits me all the time, you know, and, and just so it doesn't allow me to play as much as I would like. You know, I can't, you know, practice anymore or anything. Uh, you know, I can't go to movies anymore because the, the sound sets off the nerves. Uh, going into restaurants, if, the, if it's crowded, I usually have to leave because the nerves fire off. Uh, I just have overactive nerves now. Now, we've, we've frozen them. We've burned them. We've cut them. Uh, and uh, two years ago, we uh, cut more leg off, hoping that maybe we could get rid of them totally. And it turned out... Uh, that the doctors had left the clamp on one nerve. Oh my so God. that nerve went nuts oh and he left God. another nerve stitched to the blood vessel. Oh so that nerve was going nuts. And then all the other nerves around it go nuts. Uh, your average, your average nerve is about two centimeters. Uh, and mine, I had 12 of them that were 10 meters, 10, 10 centimeters. So that's why they're firing all the time. Uh, so I don't get, um, the constant bolts, 24/7, but I still have them a lot. But you know, my pain has been cut in half, so I'm happy. But uh, it's still it's still a painful life, and it stinks. But I, you know, again, I I'm gonna I'm gonna still do everything I can. Do you have confidants? Do you have people to talk to? I mean, you've lived the life of a thousand people, for goodness sakes. The good parts and the really really shitty parts. Do you right. have Do you have somebody? to bounce things I off do, of, yeah. yeah. I do, yeah. I do. And, you know, the great thing about me not uh, ever talking about it, you know, like Honduras, you know, is I, I pride myself on learning from my mistakes. So now I'm open, you know, well, I mean, I was always open anyway, but now I'm really open in terms of, you know, how you're feeling and and, and talking about those days where you're, you're wondering, you know, what you did wrong or what could you, you know, how, you know, what, what decisions did you make that might've screwed this up for Hunter or, you know, yeah. all the, you know, the, yeah. the kind of what if games you play. Sure. And I, I don't see anything wrong with the what if games as long as you don't let them haunt you. You can learn, you, you, you know, you have to learn from your mistakes and, you know, those who don't are going to repeat them. And, you know, one of the things I'm proud of the most is, is, is learning from my failures. What's next, Ken? Uh, well, I'm going to probably get a bite to eat and then go to bed. <laughs> uh, uh, no, and what's next is obviously, we'll, you know, I'll try to promote the book as much as I can. You know, because I, I, from what I'm told, it's a really good book in the sense that it, it covers so many different emotions because, one, obviously, what, what a bizarre life I've had. But we've got, you know, there's there's some that are hilarious, you know, some of the stories that I've told and about life and golf and all that, and uh, you know, so I'm I'm hoping that, you know, I can help somebody through the book, and uh, you know, I'm willing to talk to anybody, you know, my emails are are open for everyone, so uh, you know, if someone's in trouble and they want to talk, you know, they reach out to me via email, and then I'll talk to them, you know, over the phone, and and sometimes we've even met with people. That's my goal is to, is to help and, and do what I can for everybody that, that uh, you know, has been, uh, you know, thrown a curveball in life. And some people aren't as stubborn as I am and, and, and just one-track mind of fight, fight, fight. Uh, and it's a little harder to recover from a lost son or a lost wife or, you know, losing limbs or depression and, you know, the sexual abuse and all that kind of stuff. But uh, 
so that's that's my hope that I can try to try to do some some more good and help some more people. The fact that nobody has hired you to talk golf is like the biggest upset and shock in the world. You're articulate, you're outspoken, you don't hold back. You're, as we say, unfiltered. You know the game as well as anybody. I'm stunned that we're not watching you or hearing from you week to week. You, you, you are always welcome. In fact, you probably opened a can of worms. Now you're going to start ducking my calls because I'll be, I'll be calling you to talk golf over and over again. I just can't believe that you're not somebody's analyst. That's unbelievable. I, I've always wondered about that. I, I remember once, you know, 20 years ago, uh, NBC tried to hire me and, and you know I was just coming out of the depression and I wanted to fight on and and um, I, I'm a little I'm, I'm baffled by it to be honest with you because I, I do you know obviously I, I, I'm knowledgeable and I have a unique way of saying things that, that that the average Joe will understand versus all the prim and proper baloney that the idiots give you on TV and <laughs> you know the, the, the idea that Nick Faldo is out there who is the biggest jerk on the planet <laughs> and people think that he's this great guy and it's like yeah yeah but uh, you know that's that's the game of life i guess I, I don't get it what do you think about the game these days what do you think about uh tiger's win at augusta what do you think about the state of uh of the game the game of golf well i've i've said for even before tiger came back that he's going to win multiple majors he's just too good no, I'm not a Tiger fan personally, but as a golfer, he's phenomenal. Um, and it's it's just a no-brainer. He's just too good. Now, what one thing that does scare me that that I don't think the PGA or the USGA or the Tour cares about is the game of golf and where we're going because we're losing people left and right. And golf is not in a good shape. And we're about to turn the golf into a top 5% a game again. And we have got to figure out a way to get these kids back out on the golf course. And I don't think the PGA of America is selling it right. Uh, we all know that young teenagers are, you know, 11 on, in most cases, don't really want to spend too much time with their parents. Well, for whatever reason, they will go to the golf course and play golf with them. So if you want to have a good relationship with your kids as they get into those trouble in years yeah you you learn to play golf and you guys play golf together and now you built a relationship that will last you 50 years because how many times you see a parents that are that are 60 and you know the kids that are 35 and they kind of have nothing to talk about or nothing to do they kind of yeah look at each other like they're idiots and it's it's with golf you can play it till you drop and you you for the most case there's very little trouble in golf, you know, always, you know, there's always an occasional guy, but, you know, cause you know, think about it. You're young, you're, you're hanging around adults all the time, which you love as a kid, cause it makes you feel like you're, you know, better than, than just the normal 11 year old. And, and, and you're, you know, you're building relationships. They, they learn how to behave. They learn how to respect and golf's a no brainer for kids. And all all the families are doing is sticking these iPads and iPhones in their face so they don't have to pay attention to them. And we're about to ruin the game of golf. Some of us are trying to grab those iPhones and phones and iPads away from them. <laughs> I, I don't know about the people oh. that are giving it to them. But, Ken, I, I, just, I just can't tell you how, I, how much I appreciate 
you being willing to spend some extended time with us on this on this show. I, I think, and I know, I, I shouldn't say I think, because I've told my story in the very first episode of this podcast, and now that you've shared yours, you're going to help somebody. There are people out there listening to this that you've really, really helped, and I admire you for your courage, your sincere ability to be able to articulate such a life a life full of problems mistakes bad choices unfair twists i hope that we can call upon you just to come on and laugh and talk about golf uh and i just send on behalf of the entire audience a lot of positive energy ken green's way i really appreciate that and i and just for the viewers i'm, I'm dead serious when i say that just remember ken at one leg green <laughs> and the name and of the and the name of the book is hunter the name of the book is hunter of hope but if, if somebody hope. wants to talk just email me and we'll figure out how to talk give and, that email address again give that email address again ken at one leg green.com amazing you're the best ken thank you very very much for being with us you got it, big boy. Take care. Wow. Professional golfer Ken Green from Mitch Unfiltered, episode 52. Not many interviews over the years that I've done where I laughed and nearly cried in just a few minutes span. Work or live in downtown Seattle? You now have the opportunity to discover Seattle's most unique downtown bar. It's called the Rick House Whiskey Bar, located at the downtown Daniels Broiler in the new Hyatt Regency. The Rick House Whiskey Bar, a secluded IN bar featuring over 150 of the finest spirits from around the world. The Rick House Whiskey Bar has two happy hours from 4 to 6.30 and 9 p.m. to close. You can take $4 off of any of these Daniels classics like filet mignon steak strips, classic steakhouse burgers, bacon-wrapped scallops, Dungeness crab legs, fried calamari, and much more. Daniel's world-class quality is on display at its happy hours. Experience a world-class downtown bar, the Rick House Whiskey Bar, at the new downtown Daniel's at the Hyatt Regency, easy to get to, and a world-class steakhouse. Unfiltered. So there you have it, episode 80. We took 400 interviews and we narrowed it down to our favorite. You want to call them favorite four, most moving four, important. most entertaining four. Maybe well, important. the Michael Jordan thing wasn't important in the least. <laughs> I guess so. But we, I mean, I guess we needed something to kind of like, just a, like a light one to make yeah. everybody laugh. <laughs> yeah. But it's an incredible yeah. story, yeah. the Michael Jordan. And I, and I appreciate the fact that Ken Green makes us laugh too. That's right. In the midst of all that he's still dealing with, he can still find a way to make us all laugh. I may so, have already said go. this, but I don't know how he got out of bed every day. The amount of things that have happened to him. If one of those things well, would have happened to me. he needed to fight me, an alligator, didn't he? Oh, <laughs> Fighting he an alligator. To, he needed to wrestle an alligator to get his dog out to of To save his dog. Unbelievable. Yeah. But I mean, if one of those, I just said the word. If one of those things happens to me, I, I might be in a fetal position and never get out of bed. Yeah. The fact that he had the courage and the strength. Still trying. keep And, and by the way, one leg and still trying to play Champions Tour golf. Not finding a lot of success, yeah. not getting out there much anymore, but still trying to play golf at the highest level, even with one leg. And, and it's just, you know, again, we all sit in a circle and we throw our, our, yeah. our troubles into the middle. You want your own back. Do you think he'll ever get a job on TV? No, because he already would have gotten one. And I think people are scared of him. Scared I mean, you just, Well, you just listen to him. 
He's he'll say anything about anybody. He's unfiltered, and you just he's a, he's off the wall. People are scared of what Ken Green might say or might do. They always have been, even when he was a player, they were huh. scared of him. But let me tell you where he can be a golf commentator. Right here, we'll take him, Mitch. Unfiltered. <laughs> he's ours. You can you can rest assured that that guy will be on during the Masters on Mitch Unfiltered. If we're still doing Mitch Unfiltered programs during the Masters, U.S. Open. Kenny Green, if he'll if he'll have us, he'll be on. Great, I love hearing him, and I would actually watch golf if he was on the broadcast. <laughs> that's how much I love the guy. He's he's <laughs> incredible. Uh, all right, so uh, that's it. That's it. I hope you're enjoying Florida. That's it. You look I think, tan. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> how, did that, how does that work? <laughs> now we're gonna end the we're gonna end episode eighty with a song that I an original song. I did a song about the Mariners not too long ago, but we got to name the show before we 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 play the song. You're gonna make me do this, aren't you? You're going to yeah. make me. You could go. Why don't you go episode Kellen Winslow? I think. It's, oh, by the way, you owe us some stats on Chris Carter. No, I don't. You? I, my, uh, your internet crashed. Tell us the stats <laughs> on Chris Carter versus Steve. It Larkin. was a different time. I, Chris I, Carter. I okay. mean, he played. I asked you that if we asked somebody with no skin in the game, if one guy could be in the Hall of Fame, Chris Carter or Steve Largent, which one would it be? You said there's no comparison. It would be Steve Largent. And I contend that that's because you are from the Pacific Northwest and you went with your grandmother's tickets. To the, no, that's not to what I said. I said because Largent owned every okay. receiving record okay. at the time. That's not nothing. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Chris Carter played in 234 games, 1,100 catches, 13,000 yards, 130 TDs. I don't know if this is going to remember any of this. Uh, Largent only played in 200 games, so that's 34 less games, 819 receptions, 300 less than Carter, 13,000 yards, about the same. Carter had about 800 more, uh, and he had 100 touchdowns, whereas Carter had 130. Now, the question is, if Largent would have played in a different era, would his stats have been different? Probably. But nonetheless, Chris Carter didn't own every receiving record when he retired, and Largent did. Therefore, it's episode Dane Looker. <laughs> Isn't he a pure olive guy, Dane Looker? And you're like Brock Ewers, buddy. Uh, episode? Well, it's easy. It's it's really not that hard for me. Mm. Episode Jerry Rice is in the books. Here comes my original production of Leaving This Town. You better not watch, we'll bring a tear to your eye. You might as well pout, cause there's no reason why. Our all-stars are leaving this town. They're grabbing their gloves, packing their bats, bagging awards and fabulous stats. Our all-stars are leaving this town. He'll trade you when you are sleeping. He'll boot you when you're awake. No hitters or 57 saves. Doesn't matter for goodness sakes. You better not watch. We'll bring a tear to your eye. You might as well pout cause there's no reason why. Our all-stars are leaving this town. All right! 
They'll trade you when you are sleeping. They'll boot you when you're awake. They'll balk at your current contract. One they wanted in the first place. You better not watch, we'll bring a tear to your eye. Might as well pout, cause there's no reason why. Our all-stars are leaving town. You better not watch, we'll bring a tear to your eye. Might as well pout, cause there's no reason why. Our all-stars are leaving. Big maple, sweet sugar, and the hitting machine are leaving this town.